Hello, hello. Welcome to episode one of the Eddie Conversation podcast. My name is Eddie V. Hill and I am your host. Um, I started this podcast because I've been craving conversation, uh, more specifically extended conversation with an opportunity to dive into more of the nuance and and the nitty-gritty of certain topics and ideas. And I hope to explore uh, a variety of of such things throughout the the history of, of whatever this may turn into. And me coming from the a filmmaker background, I can't I couldn't help but also film these conversations. So if you do want to watch the uh, the video of the conversation, you can find those on my YouTube channel. You can just search the Eddie Conversation podcast. And without further ado, let's jump into it. Episode one featuring Michael G. Gable. <laughs> First of all, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for coming over and uh, setting us all up. Yeah, and you're Michael G. Gable. Uh, I think about you as a as a model, yeah, actor, artist, yeah. Um, but you are so much more. <laughs> some some days, maybe I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I always like the idea of of. I mean, people. I like the idea of going into the nuance of the whole thing, which is kind of the idea with the, the three hour the three hour window of yeah. of like. I've heard you talk about your experience as a theme park designer, mm-hmm. but it's always like a surf, surface level kind of fighting back on the on, yeah. on the initial judgment of like, oh, that sounds awesome, and then you kind of combat that. But well, it's funny because I just reread my resignation letter to the CEO of the theme park design company. Yeah. And that was, I like tore that company apart. I didn't remember how harsh it was. Oh, wow. They deserved it, but yeah, that was wild to reread. So let's, I guess, I guess for, for the people at home listening about, about you for the first time mm-hmm. here, I, I want to establish kind of where we come from and how we met and, yeah. and kind of get that out of the way. If, yeah. uh, What's your what's your side of that? What does that look like? Uh, I was booked on a shoot in New Mexico for a resort, and it was through my fitness agency. They wanted some people who were active and could go zip lining and mountain biking and hiking. And you were the camera assist, photography assistant. Yeah. Uh, for the main photographer, this guy named Jeff Dow, who was great, really fun to work with, and we were there for. Four days we shot? Yeah, something like that. And it was a really chill shoot. They were so many days they'd be like, Yeah, just meet us at noon in the lobby. Like there was no like up for sunrise, waiting till golden hour. There was no, you know, having to get our eight to twelve hours of shooting in. It was very chill. So we had some time to kind of talk on the sidelines. And yeah. you you mentioned that you were planning to move to LA. Right. And you sort of like were like, Hey, I'm gonna hit you up. And I was like, Cool. And then you did. You moved to LA. You hit me up. We went for coffee with your two roommates, and you basically were just like, "What can you tell me about this city?" And I, I don't know. I gave you a couple websites you could go to to find work and some vague platitudes about the hustle. But <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I guess to, because I know you've been at this. You've been in LA longer than obviously than I have. So yeah. when I approached you in New Mexico on the shoot, just talking about like, hey, I'm looking to move. Like, I, I'm curious. I, I don't know if we talked about this before, but like, what was going through your head as far as uh, 
Like, oh, he's going to hit, like, did you expect me to actually follow through and move and hit you up? Uh, or, and, I figured you were going to move, but I didn't really <laughs> think you were going to hit me up. But then you did, and immediately I was struck by, like, your attitude of moving to the city and how you weren't just moving and, like, I'm going to live in L.A. and, like, maybe I'll make a movie one day. You were like, I'm moving to L.A. I'm going to make movies, and I'm going to figure out how to do that. I'm going to connect with everyone I can. And I was very inspired in that first coffee meeting by your drive because I've been in LA for eight and a half years and I've met a lot of people who've moved out here to do something creative or something in the film world or to be an actor and now they're real estate agents or they sure, sure. live in Venice and just like party and like they're the mayor of Venice but they're not doing they yeah. never wrote that pilot they never got a staff writing job um, and they just like go to brunch and I don't think you go to brunch. I think you work. And I think that's... Brunch? Brunch is expensive. <laughs> I have a whole thing about brunch that people... I think people act as if they've made it. Especially in like my early 20s when I was you know, 24 living in Venice and partying a little too much probably. Um, people would go out to these expensive dinners, these expensive brunches and act as if they were rich. It's like you, you can't afford that every weekend. You can't afford to spend every Saturday and Sunday day drinking and getting hammered at night and not working on your passion project and then going to your day job that you have to pay your rent with hungover and then like, you know, powering through the week and then doing it over again. And I wanted to write this, this uh, pilot called Fuck Brunch, which was about the, the dichotomy of the people who act as if and the people who make oh, it happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And you're, you are, I would say, on the extreme end of the other side. Of the non-brunchers yeah i'm trying to i'm trying to find that balance for sure because yeah. um but yeah i mean okay so we'll go we can go from there um i did want to jump from so we, we met in new mexico on the shoot i moved here mm -hmm. hit, hit you up yep. we met up uh we like it, i like to have the conversations about like all right cool like what are you about and and once you're like, what are you trying to do? How could how could we help each other? Like, yeah. I'm not just here for me. I'm here to, you know. I totally forgot that part of our meeting. Yeah. <laughs> so you yeah. brought up uh, van life, yep. and um, we were talking about how to kind of find some sort of like e easy, easy, easy shoot. So yeah, low impact. I had this pilot. Yeah. Called van life um, for a half hour, hour. Um, TV show about two guys who quit their jobs, buy a van, and chase down the romantic idea of van life. And it's their one's fly by the seat of his pants, one's type A, how does it work out? Mm -hmm. Intimacy in a heterosexual relationship. There's a lot of layers to it. I had written, I'd been sitting on this thing for years, not doing anything with it, just being like, one day maybe someone will be like, do you want $100,000 to make a pilot? And I'll just do it. Yeah, but yeah. you came up to me and you're like, we can do this in a weekend for. I don't know. I think we we ended up doing it for two thousand dollars or something. Yeah, all that was spent, from my understanding, is uh, the van. We rented the van. We and bought food for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Always got to feed your crew, no matter how cheap your shoot is. Feed your crew. Feed your crew. And <laughs> we bought some set dressing, maybe. I don't even think we did that because. Or no, yeah, you invested in the ball pit, but. Um, and I paid for a sound editor. Because we used a boom and it was not the best sound, and sound is really important. And I bought a ball pit, 
for one of the iconic scenes. Um, but yeah, like that, I was so blown away that you could just, you just do it. I, I don't know. You have this, yeah. like, and it comes from that attitude of how can I help you? Not just what can I get from you? How can you teach me how to thrive in this city? But how can I help you thrive in this city? And in doing so, build up my own brand or, you know, career. And it's, it's just a beautiful way to go about things. Yeah, yeah. I like to make sure that, I mean, because that's the thing is people always talk about, like, they have trouble getting people to, to work with them or to help make their thing. It's because they approach it from, yeah, that, that mindset. We're like, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get hit up and people will talk to me about their dream things and stuff and, and never ask me anything about me. It's just yeah. them, them, them. Selfish. And you can just you can just tell it's like well I, I can see why. But and then people get frustrated when no one will come to their zero budget indie short film shoot and help out and you know hold a boom mic. But you have to give what you want to get. Mm-hmm. So you gave you showed up to L.A. and I was like okay I'm gonna have this coffee meeting and tell them about like Actors Access or L.A. Casting or whatever. But you gave me something. You gave me a way to produce this thing I had been circling for years, and then I was able to give you something by helping you with your feature film. Yeah. So you got, <laughs> you gave, and then you got. Oh, yeah. And then, and then, of course, I'm not thinking about the, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's the short, short-term, long-term thought process yeah. where, like, let's just do something now, see what happens. But, yeah, I guess we could jump from that to talking. Um, so, moved here, coffee. Made van life in, mm-hmm. uh, in in a weekend or, or whatever we ended up doing. Was scratch the shit out of that van. Yeah, I got the <laughs> scratch the van. I hit a fence. It was my fault. And uh, from there, uh, that was kind of um, I guess for me, observing you and Michelle together, mm-hmm. that was almost like a from my perspective, I was like, oh sweet, like I can see the potential chemistry on on screen and stuff, and that kind of helped jumpstart my my mindset on on who i was writing for when i mm-hmm. started started my my feature film um, yeah for sure and i think you definitely pulled a lot of the characterization from van life and put it into the story that you wrote because michelle has a certain tone about her that's very i don't know reserved and quiet but like there's a underlying confidence and beauty to it and yeah i think you wrote really well towards that after having seen her on screen Mm -hmm. yeah so you you were in my mind for for it's what's on the inside from from the get because of that experience and then now we're here and the movie's done congrats and thank you you did it thank you um but yeah so that's 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 our kind of experience together is you mm-hmm. were you were on set for five days for for the feature yeah. and and we worked yeah <laughs> we went to reno for the last day or yeah. the second to last yeah day. like a bonus day or some yeah yeah you flew me to reno that's awesome yeah that was cool um i've never flown anybody for a for a shoot before so it was, it was kind of nice to... i've never been flown for a feature film before <laughs> or since so it was yeah. very cool yeah, so that that's us, and I wanted to dig into uh, 
kind of more more things that I don't know much about you in. I'm an open book. The only thing we can't talk about is that piece of art right there. Yeah, it's a we'll, secret. We'll, we'll get we'll get to other art. Yeah. At some point. So let me just run off some things. Um, I don't know if I have. I just want to kind of. I don't want to forget what I want to talk about. But um, all right. So we have your podcast. We have. Yeah. We can we can dive a little bit deeper into the experience on the feature. Um, I wanted to talk about. I guess a, a, a big chunk I wanted to just jump into. Um, well, actually, all right. You lived in the Middle East for a bit. Yep. You've written a book. Mm-hmm. You've designed. You've done design work for for theme parks in some capacity. So there's yeah. like there's a lot here. Yeah. And I'm excited to, <laughs> to start rattling stuff off. So Take I, it apart. The one thing I, I did that I think is really cool, especially coming coming out of. Because like you congratulate me for for finishing the feature, yeah. and I'm thinking that's a 20 month process for me, was from writing to, to to crowdfunding to production to yeah. me editing it myself to and I got to see the whole process, which yeah. is really cool. So that's 20 months. I forgot about the crowdfunding. <laughs> so that was that was a whole thing. Yeah. Um. So for you, mm-hmm. I'm curious. I I, I about the book she can yeah, fly she can fly so that or talk to us about first of all what the book is and what so is. she can fly is a book it's a memoir of domestic violence and sexual assault so it's very heavy it is a cautionary tale um that i wrote with the nanny who raised me so it's her life story authored by me it's not my memoir um and she pretty much had it as bad as you can have it so our intention was to share her story with the world in the hopes that people could recognize some of the early warning signs before their life spirals into such a dark place such a abused controlled um, brainwashed and hurt place so she we started working on it uh, my last year of college I was home for a term because I had gotten in trouble and I was actually kicked out of school for a term. Mm. Um, and I went to my nanny's house because she was like my, my rock. She even, she hadn't, you know, been involved with our family professionally for years and years and years since I was 10. But she was always this person who I could go to her house and she would make me fried chicken and mashed potatoes with a butter river and like put it on the plate, put it on the plate, set me in front of the TV and I was just like, safe she would listen to me she'd let me cry if i needed to and that's what the first place i went when i got kicked out of school because i was just lost and i went to her as i felt home and i think i just like cried my eyes out because i didn't know what i was doing with my life and she just listened and then at one point we were just watching tv and she said like honey you know some really bad things happened to me in the past right and i knew so when i was 10 carrie my nanny didn't show up to work and we came to find out that she had been arrested on a fugitive warrant from a different state. Hmm. So all the while she had been working for my family, for eight years, she had no driver's license, no bank account, no social security number. She was living under a fake name because um, we paid her in cash. And she, she was able to just be, she was a fugitive for 17 years. And I lived in St. Louis, but the state of Colorado came for her and took her back to prison 
the prison that she had escaped from. And that was when you were 10. That was when I was 10. And when did she start nannying for you? I was two. Okay. Because my parents could not handle me, and they had to bring in super nanny. And she got me into shape, and she ran our house like a ship, and she was my best friend, and my playmate, and my disciplinarian, and my teacher, and all these things, my second mother. Um, and so when she didn't come back to work, it was pretty mm-hmm. devastating because mm-hmm. she was my rock. And I was 10 at the time, and I heard some terms, domestic violence, prison, check fraud, rape, abortion, and it was all very, like, you know, I had a very privileged upbringing, and none of those things touched my life, so they were all very, you know, distant ideas, especially to a 10-year-old. And so when I'm sitting in Carrie's living room at 20 or 21, and she says, you know, some bad things happened to me, um, I was just like, yeah, I, I kind of know. And she said, you know, because when she got taken to prison, she eventually got released through the help of a lawyer who knew about her case and helped her out, um, this big shot lawyer. And when she came back to St. Louis, she had Dateline, uh, the AP Wire, Oprah. Everyone was knocking down her door. They were like, we want your story. Come on our show. Just write something down. We'll make a movie. We'll get a huge deal. And she just wanted to live her life. She didn't even know who she was. You know, this was 10 years later, and she said that she was finally ready to tell her story. Mm-hmm. She thought it was the only way she could find some silver lining in it and also help, you know, the people she had, she would see people at the grocery store who she could tell. She could have a sixth sense for women who were abused, the way they carried themselves, the way they wore their sunglasses, the way their makeup was done. And she just didn't understand why it was still happening 10 years later when domestic violence is now a crime. Cops are trained in how to deal with domestic violence situations. They don't just take the abuser to the bar and let them like get drunk and come back madder and you know say, "Oh, what'd you do to piss them off?" You know, they they were cops had resources and there were shelters and but at the same time, domestic violence was worse than ever. So she she realized that the the best thing she could do is to share her story. And so I'm sitting in her living room and she says, "Do you know anyone?" who's working on a thesis or a creative writer who could you know, potentially help me with this. I can't do it alone. And I was just like, I, I think we got to do it. You know, It just kind of hit me that it was I had to write it with her. Mm-hmm. And for the next month, I went out to her house every day. And for eight hours, she just talked. Mm-hmm. And she started at her birth, even before her birth. And over the course of that month, we got all the way to like, me sitting in that living room. And we had 100,000 words in a really shitty first draft and I spent the next six years learning how to write well enough to serve the story and then massaging that story to a place where I felt like it was ready to fly yeah yeah so all right so she she got arrested when you were 10 Mm -hmm. and so I was she never she never came back after that and you kind of had to grow up from then on without her she came back but she didn't she wasn't as big a part of my life okay yeah all right so what now all right that process you said was six years of of the actual the writing of it now i'm curious to to hear more about the post release of the once it was done Mm -hmm. What happened from there? What did? How did she respond to it? She's still around, I, I assume. Or? She passed away in 2016, mm-hmm. um, and we 2015, 
it's hard to remember the exact date, but um, 2015. Uh, we, you know, when we were writing the book, it was really hard for her to relive all these memories. And she remembered everything with like striking detail. I was blown away by how she remembered conversations and the way the room smelled and the way, you know, the, the guards changed in prison and the whole, like, she remembered everything to a T. But it was so difficult for her because she had done some really bad things when she was under the thumb of this abuser and she had written bad checks and stolen money and all of it was to protect her and her children and keep this guy from hurting them. But she was so concerned that people were going to think poorly of her, that they would judge her. And I just kept reminding her of what her intention was, where if she could get to one woman and help one woman escape a bad situation before it got to the point where it was inescapable because the longer you stay in an abusive relationship, the harder it is to get out to a point where it's impossible. And then tragedy happens. And I kept reminding her that if we got one person, it would all be worth it. And um, the book came out in March of 2014 and we sent copies all over the place, got great reviews. Uh, my friend at the Wall Street Journal wrote an amazing review and it started to circle through the domestic violence networks and it was, it was successful, but we also gave it away for free online. We still do. So it's, it was never a money-making project. And then a year to the day after it was released, um, Carrie was having some health issues, and she was in the hospital, and I was in L.A., and she called me, and her, she was just so down. She was so beaten. Her body has just been through so much, and her, she was just tired. Mm -hmm. And I told her that that day... I had been texting with a woman who reached out because of the book as she left her abusive situation. So I was helping her find the shelter to go to. I was helping her as she packed up her kid's stuff and put it in the car. And it was so surreal to do that and know that this woman did what we, what we hoped she would do, is read the book, saw the signs, and got out. And... I told Carrie that and she just lit, like she had this like childlike tone that came in her voice and she lit up and she was so happy. She was, it was, she was, she was redeemed and she was, you know, fulfilled and it all came full circle in a lot of ways that are hard to explain without reading the book and knowing how she had yeah. saved me at one point and I was saving her by helping her tell her story. And, but she passed away two weeks later because. I think she was just finished. I think she was done. She was, she had a hard life and it's kind of just this perfect ending that she saw her redemption and then was able to sleep. So, so yeah, the, so you, you've been able to circulate the book around and I know you've been, you, you still advocate all yeah. the time for, yeah, I try to, I try to bring awareness to it. It's you know it's a tough issue, but because I I believe when I was scouring the Instagram page and stuff, like it mentioned even it, it cured some uh, internal family struggles too. Like I I think I saw the son the son read the book. Oh yeah, all the sons have read the book. Yeah, how can you tell me about that or or the sons? Yeah, just like what 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 you've learned from. <laughs> Well, from witnessing these kind of interactions, and so Carrie had four sons with her abuser, her husband, and a lot of the reasons was because if she was pregnant, she couldn't leave. If she had kids, she there was more reasons not to leave. And 
when she went to prison and then escaped, the, the boys, all four boys were with the dad, the abuser, and his mother, and in foster homes, and bouncing around all these different places, and being told that their mother just left them. So when they reconnected back in St. Louis years and years later, um, they were mad at her. They didn't know the truth, and they, you know, they were resentful because of what they'd been told. And Carrie's whole goal in life was just to be a mother and to finally reconnect with her boys was everything, but it was so difficult. And there was healing, and there was, um, they they found enough of the truth to respect her and build a relationship with her. And she was able to have those relationships with her sons until she passed away. And the amazing thing about those boys, all four of them, is that they're good men, stable men with healthy relationships and like beautiful children, and they're not abusers. And that's, that's, when you have been modeled that throughout your childhood, that that's how relationships work, that dad hits mom, and that's how it, go, how it goes. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's like, you know, the, the son of an alcoholic who never touches alcohol, whereas the, the brother, it becomes an alcoholic. But it's amazing that all four of those boys went the, yeah. the positive route. Yeah. That's... So that's... I mean, I talk to Jermaine uh, all the time. I talk to Michael, their son, all the time. All the time. When I go to St. Louis, I try to see them. So they're they're my brothers. Yeah. 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 Because uh, I have, I guess, like my whole perspective on is like how you introduced the subject is like I have no experience in in that in that realm. So in writing, or no, in domestic I, no, I, violence, I yeah, mean, towards the domestic violence and yeah. yeah, like my my parents are great and have always been supportive of me and I've never witnessed anything like all that all that kind of stuff. So it's not in my world. So yeah, um, I have been doing more reading lately and I, I checked out like I, I've read the book and stuff. Um, well, I've read the intro chapters to the book. Yeah, uh, so far, but it's like three uh, pages. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah I'm curious okay like something that I've been thinking a lot about during uh, these quarantine times is I think on a lot of I feel like a lot of people have been going through uh, internal different internal struggles and, and changes and sure. and witnessing the world around us and seeing these issues and wondering like what can we do like what can I do as an individual yeah. to make a difference and make change and, and create something that helps push toward the positive mm-hmm. um, I feel like you've done a, a version of that with like telling the story and getting it out there uh, but I am curious on your thoughts as to how or if you have thoughts on this like how can individuals that aren't in that sphere do something to to help yeah like what like what if, yeah, um, well first of all this quarantine time is is a really tough time for domestic violence because people are They're stuck stuck in homes with in toxic relationships the abuser may have lost their job so they're stressed out their you know money is tight 
and that just catalyzes you know the need for control to take control and then that control becomes abuse and the abuse becomes violence and it's just it's a really tough time because people aren't able to get out and get the help they need get the support they need and i've i've tried to like share a lot of resources that are you know trying to provide the help that's you know usually there in terms of shelters and providing food and resources for women who are in tough situations because when you got to go you got to go but you need somewhere to go and it's a tough position so i mean yeah yeah because i guess like i think about you talk about carrie and and this is kind of like the intro of the book too is she has interaction with the woman in a parking lot Mm -hmm. and she knows what's going on and she wants to help yep but there there's it's 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 the same it's the classic thing where somebody has to be asking for the help right you can't tell them so well I'd say the best thing you can do is educate yourself about the cycle of abuse. How it works, how it starts, how it spirals bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper. And just try to educate yourself on the, the, the signs that there's abuse taking place in a relationship. It's, they're subtle, but they're there and you can pick up on them. And then the second thing you can do is just be open to that that asking for help and it might be in a way that's it's even more subtle it might be just someone like being like can we can we just go for like a margarita like i don't know Mm -hmm. it's just you have to be aware of the signs and aware of when someone's asking for help even if it's not a direct request um yeah i don't yeah because because the the first thing you mentioned is is being aware of the signs is more of like if if I've let's say for instance if I read the book and I'm like oh that I don't know my my thought is if you know the signs and you're you're less likely to get caught up in that spiraling is more is is that is that what you're yeah yeah that's more the point yeah yeah I mean you can't you can't excuse early signs or levels of abuse you can't you can't find a way to justify or you know abusers are so smart there's a book called uh, why does he do that by lundy bancroft that goes through the different types of abusers like there's prince charming there's the terrorists there's mm-hmm. um there's all kinds of different ways that they use their insidious tactics but the the main thing they do is find a way to make the abused person feel like they're they deserve it and they they start to believe it and then they're stuck. So the, the key is, I mean, I, I wish every girl ages 13 to 15 could read stories about how domestic violence in relationships begins and how it progresses because there are girls who think that like their teenage boyfriends and their high school boyfriends, are it's okay for them to hit them. That's like, they Maybe it was modeled for them by their parents. Maybe it's just you know the environment they grew up in maybe it's what they saw on tv but people still think it's normal and it's not it's not okay and you have to put your foot down and there's certain people in pop culture who have been mm-hmm. caught 
being abusive and they're just kind of like forgot it's like kind of forgotten about and it's like oh no his new album came out so i just want to buy that album because i like his music right right and i just i can't i i think putting your foot down and refusing to support someone who is truly abusive is important and that's and then just trying to be healthy in your own relationships trying to lead by example you know um which seems like a simple thing like don't hit your partner but don't like i don't know people yeah, do it right yeah. yeah i guess that was going to be my next my next thought was um the the aggressor side yeah. on I, I don't know how deep you've gotten into researching why it happens in the first yeah. place or if there's anything um, to keep in mind on that side of things on there's a lot of psychology behind it and you know you can be an abuser in your romantic relationship in your work relationships in your friendships you know you can be abusive in a million different ways and it doesn't all involve black eyes and bloody mm -hmm. lips but what i've figured out that the psychology comes down to is entitlement and control the abuser thinks they are entitled to a position of power over this other person, whoever it may be, whatever the relationship might be, they're subordinate. And because they're entitled to that position of power, they're going to take control. And that manifests in so many different ways. There's financial abuse, making sure that your spouse doesn't have a credit card, has no bank account in their name, so they can't get away. They have no money. There's social abuse, making sure that they're you know, kept socially distant, which we're all doing right now, um, and controlling the perceptions of people in your social group. You know, abusers are really good at making their partners, parents, friends, neighbors, coworkers think that they're the crazy one, mm -hmm. that they're, they're the one who's insane. They're, it, it's just like they're crazy gaslighting. Um, so... Yeah, it's just, and it all manifests in different ways, and it's just, but it, it's that entitlement that leads to control, that leads to abuse, and you've got to nip that entitlement in the butt. You can't think that you're, for any reason, have a justification for controlling and abusing some other person. It's just, I don't know. It seems, again, it seems so simple, but it's maybe part of human nature maybe part of our like animal lizard brain is to win i don't know yeah i don't yeah because i mean i the only thing when i think about myself and early relationships and stuff i always think about how it takes a long time to really be comfortable with yourself and be confident in yourself and figure out who you are and how to stand up like that how to be in a relationship. Yeah, how to be in a relationship, even how to be an individual and stand up for like yeah. who you are. Like that that takes time. So it's it's a yeah. tough it's a tough uh experience. experience is the Yeah, I mean I didn't have a real relationship until I was twenty four mm -hmm. because I never felt like I was self actualized or like I never felt like I was like ready ready complete you know a, you got to be a one before you can be a two and i never felt like a one i never felt like i don't know i just wasn't ready to be vulnerable and open and i don't know it's just yeah that's a it's a very mature uh maybe well, I, I mean 
it takes a lot to go to the outside to observe yourself in that way and be like, I'm not ready for that and holding out because most people yeah. kind of rush into it thinking it's going to fix them or, or, or however it may yeah. come about. But. And I definitely was flawed in my first relationship, which I thought that I would just get into a relationship and it'd be one and done. I'd get married oh, and that'd wow. be it. I had this romantic idea that I'd just find the one. But you, have, you realize that relationships take practice. You get better at them as they evolve. And yeah, if you marry your high school sweetheart and you guys have a healthy relationship from age 16 on, awesome. Chances are, not going to work out for everyone. And you got to go through those growing pains of, you know, you, you hurt each other and you get hurt and you, you make mistakes and you learn what feels good and what feels bad. And it's, um, it kind of sucks that you have to go through that, but you do. You have to... You have to learn how to be in a healthy relationship. You have to learn how to be selfless and truly caring and truly loving and giving and honest and communicative and emotionally available. There's a ton of things you have to learn to be in a good relationship. Um, I'm still working on it. I'm not perfect. No, it's, I mean, that's, that's the, it's life. Yeah. But like, could be doing better, I don't know. No, for sure. That's yeah. the, that's the struggle of every aspect of life is constant improving and all that stuff. Yeah, but you do need to be proud of how far you've come mm -hmm. and to some extent happy with where you are because that's where you are. So, yeah. I think I've come a long way in my relationships. That's for sure. So now, all right, so... The book came out in 2014. 14. Mm -hmm. We're in 2020. It's been six years. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I want to... I'm curious to jump from the heavier topic stuff of, yeah. what, of what's in... Of, of the message of messages of the book and jump back into that writing process you said you massaged for so long. Yeah. Like, I'm curious as to how you decided to tell it in the way that you did because... Uh, like I, I've read some of the reviews and, and mm -hmm. it grabs people quickly and, and it's very well written and there's like time jumping around so you start yeah. in later years and jump back so I'm, I'm curious if you if you have any insight on to how you told the story no it took a yeah it took a long time to figure out the best way to tell the story and a couple of our intentions were one we needed to tell the story in a way that was compelling and almost urgent that our goal was to have people read it in one sitting. We wanted to write it, you know, 100,000 words is 400 pages, so we whittled that down to 217 pages because um, we wanted people, to, wanted people to have the chance to get through it in one sitting because there was a fear that if you put a book that, 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 that that's that heavy down, you're not going to want to go back to it. Mm -hmm. So that's why the first couple chapters are short and then, oh, just keep going, keep going, keep going. And then, you know, she's got so much in her life that like it just keeps coming and you, you sort of don't have a chance to stop. There's no respite until the happy ending. Um, so that was one goal. And then another goal was writing in a way that was not simple but accessible. We wanted a 13-year-old girl to be able to read it and process it and digest it. And um, that was important to us. So I read, like, I read like The Hunger Games and I read a bunch of young adult stuff just to figure out the... Um, the level of the writing 
and um, and what are you working from the whole time? Did you? I'm I'm assuming like did you record the conversations or like how did you? How did you? I what did that process in that work? first month when we were just getting the story down, I would go to her house. She would talk. I would take notes furiously on my laptop, and I'd go home at night and put it into some sort of sort of narrative, mm-hmm. put it in sentences and paragraphs and um, chronology, and then that was what became that hundred thousand words, and that just got chopped up, moved around, edited down, until it was like a lean, driving narrative, and that was. That was what the process of six years was. It was just getting, killing all your darlings, getting rid of the fluff, figuring out what the spine of the story is, only adding words that drive towards that spine. Um, and yeah, and then the other part of it was I had to be a channel for Carrie's voice. I couldn't, you know, I have my own style of writing when I write little essays and whatnot, but I, it wasn't my tone it was really important to capture the way she spoke and the way her words came out and were authentic especially you know i had to write about getting raped having an abortion having babies you know being beaten mercilessly by a spouse and those are all things that i had never and in some cases could never experience Mm -hmm. so i had just had to like I don't, it was this very vulnerable um, practice of just like almost blacking out and just letting her words come through my fingers somehow. Um, and I think it worked. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's parts where I had to write about myself as a third person. I had to write about her perception of me as a little boy. And those were really tough because there was some pain behind that little boy. and. That was another situation where I just kind of had to black out and trust. Yeah, because that's... Um, yeah, cause you wrote it in the first person, mm-hmm. so it was yeah. her perspective the entire time. It's Carrie's perspective, yeah. That's very interesting. Like I said, like making making the feature, it was on the inside, it was mm-hmm. a 20-month process for me. Yeah. This, for you, it's ongoing in, in ways. Yeah, There's, that's a outline of a potential screenplay mm. Mm. talking about doing it as an audiobook or a podcast and always trying to push it further mm-hmm. I always feel like I'd be doing more with it um, yeah so that makes it um, 10 10 years Tw- was it 2010 because I'm trying to do the math 2010 that we started working on it 2009 ish so it's been 11 years yeah um and it's difficult because if you read the book and you, you see there's a there's a part of, towards the end where, where Carrie saves me in a way. And that is reflected in the way I was able to help her tell her story. And the book feels like this perfect circle of vulnerability and redemption and connection. And no, I don't think anyone could have written that book with her besides me. It was just... It was meant to be. The fact that I was home, that she saw that woman at the grocery store that day. Um, it's it's just, I, I, I think it's the most perfect creative thing I'll ever do. I don't think I can beat it. Mm. Um, and I've always wanted to turn it into a screenplay because I think that's one way to draw more attention to the issue, you know. Um, and there's never been a domestic violence 
movie um, that's really gotten it right or been as impactful as it could be. I think there's like enough with Jennifer Lopez and like some other things, but it's never really gotten to the heart of the issue. And, mm-hmm. you know, part of me feels like every day that that movie's not out there is a day that I'm failing, but also it's like we wrote the book. That was the, the I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The story's out there and yeah. it's in, in, people are hearing it yeah but i could i can see the 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 need for wanting to get it out there even more so get yeah because that's been the i i just started read like reading again recently like november i started started reading like just reading anything just reading in general (laughs) like i wasn't reading i didn't read a word for months i didn't read like yeah you don't so, have time to read. You're always making films. So, I, for whatever reason, I committed to half an hour a day to to read something. It's good. So, um, I've had a chance to read a couple of memoirs and and whatnot. And yeah. and of course, there's all those studies that say that reading, like people who read, are just more empathetic and 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 are like smarter. Yeah, because like, you you are forced to see things through someone else's worldview and. Yeah. yeah. So, so my my gut reaction is 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 that the book is actually probably the most visceral experience you'll have, but people don't read. People don't read. So it's good to have other forms. They of see it. movies. It's good. <laughs> it's good to have other forms of of the message, just so you can hit as many, yeah, many markets or demographics or whatever the the, the case may be. But and that's um, the other thing is like we put the book out under our own publishing imprint because we wanted to have full control over it. We were scared of what a publisher or an agent or an editor would do to the story to make it more dramatic. Because right. when you're dealing with the psychology of abuse, you can't get it wrong because then you're teaching people the wrong things. So we did our best to get her story right and we knew we did that. So we were very cautious with bringing anyone else on board and we put the book out. We wanted to give away for free. We wanted to maintain control over the story and then the idea of bringing it to Hollywood not that like I have producers knocking down my door but it scares me what you see what happens to memoirs that become biopics and you see what happens to movies that get it you know books that get adapted they it's never quite the same yeah and that scares me so if I was to work with anyone on it I'd have to be absolutely sure that they were on the same page and that's I haven't found that yet, so... Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. So I guess this is a kind of... Not the smoothest of transitions, mm. but I think maybe we can segue out of this somehow. So as far as that that chunk of time you spent creating this book... Yeah. What else... Can you put me in the time frame of, like, completing, completing school in mm-hmm. college and how that overlapped and... And yeah, and we're, yeah. How does that all play out? So we had we had that hundred thousand words, and I think I had one or two terms left at school, and I wasn't really able to work on it at, while I was finishing school and socializing and you know being a college kid. And then I got the job in the Middle East in Jordan as a theme park designer. And so what year was this? I moved to Jordan in the end of two thousand ten. I moved to Jordan like. 
two months before the Arab Spring happened. Okay. So I was right there in the eye of the storm. So that's early in the in the writing process then. Yeah, I, I mean, and then in Jordan, I was busy learning my new job and traveling and, you know, hanging out in this wild foreign environment. And I didn't work on it quite as much as I wanted to. Um, and I was being groomed in this job and they wanted me to sign on for four more years in Jordan. And I did. And then I had nightmares about it. And then I backed out of it because I knew I wasn't doing what I wanted to do, which was work on this book. Mm -hmm. I was just sitting in a drawer. And a lot of that came down to reading The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, which is all about what is the creative, what is, what is your creative need? What do you need to give to the world? What can only you bring to the world? And what, what's holding you back? What resistance is preventing you from contributing that beauty to the world? And that, I recommend that book to anyone who has a creative or inspirational bone in their body because it's so important to just figuring out what you need to do and it's why a, you're not doing it's it. It's a stressful read. Really? <laughs> well, I mean, in ways where it's forcing you to do things you don't want. To. I mean, the resistance yeah. Yeah. is the stress. So putting you up against the wall of stress is like... I've read, I've only, like, I, I can't tackle it all at once. Like, I have to read chunks because, like, yeah. every, every bit is stresses me out on that book. But you, I think you are so good at conquering resistance. You just do. And a, a lot of the book is, like, you're going to lose friends. You can't have these hobbies. You're going to make less money. And it's all these things you give up. Yeah, you're not going to have brunch. You're not going to have brunch. <laughs> you can't have mimosas till 3 p.m. Um, but I think you you have somehow have this innate ability to transcend that resistance and just keep making. Sure. I think it's like an addiction cool. for you. Uh, yeah, it, it, once, once, you, once you learn it's overcomable, is that a word? Um, once you learn you can overcome it. Yeah. It's hard not to, it's hard, it's hard to stop because you know you can't, but. Um, well, that's why you see people who are so successful in so many areas of their life, you know, a, comedian gets really big and then they they become an actor and then they you know create a production company like people yeah, yeah. once you know how to succeed you can apply it to other avenues but it's figuring out that formula for success so still, still working on it yeah <laughs> so you, all right so you were you were connected to that book yep and that kind of helped push you in a direction while you were there or 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 i guess i mean i, I kind of want to jump back a little bit okay is how did how did this job come about? How did it feel like in in that moment when you said yes? To, like how, did, how can we talk about that move? Yeah. To Jordan and committing to that in the first place. And well, I studied fine art and architecture in college, and I thought I wanted to go to architecture school. And I found out how long it took, how much it cost, and how little you made when you got out. So I had no interest in more school. Um, and through an alumni. I was connected to this um, multimedia entertainment company in Jordan because I taught English there one summer as just a summer program. Mm -hmm. And they connected me to this company and they were starting a theme park design division. And they knew I was invested in architecture and that I was interested in the region and that I had you know, learned some of the language. And they gave me the opportunity to help start this division. And A, I needed a job. I was cut off from my parents at this point. Um, B, it was a chance to travel 
use my degree and be creative and explore. Like I, I couldn't turn it down. Mm -hmm. um, and moving abroad is very seductive. You you go through this sort of sine wave of like, I love this. I'm never moving back to the states. Like I'm just gonna travel for the rest of my life and be a dirtbag or work for some NGO. And then you go like, ah, I want to go home. I'm tired of this. Like I miss my friends. I miss McDonald's. I miss whatever. So, so that that's how it played out for you. Was... It just keeps going up okay. and down. Uh, and then the, the waves get bigger and bigger. And then, mm -hmm. um, eventually, I got to a point after I signed that four-year contract where I knew I was not supposed to be there. I had been not learning the language. I had been not um, really investing in my company, even though I was progressing pretty well. Um, I just knew it wasn't for me. And I knew uh, we were opening an office in L.A. And I'd always had this itch to be on set to do something right, on set right be an actor be something um, so my plan was to get transferred to the LA office while working on my book um, move into maybe production design something apply my my modeling skills from the theme park company to art direction or production design get on set figure out what I liked on set and then if it worked out move towards talent on camera talent. So how long were you in Jordan? <laughs> year and a half. Year and a half. Yeah. And that's you had all those waves <laughs> through that to that yeah. one one year and a half. Yeah, they I convinced my CEO to send me to LA for a six week training period to learn um, from the guy who ran the physical model shop where you build all the models of the rides. Yeah. And I just never came back. You developed your escape plan. Yeah. Yeah. I just never came back. So I, I still want to hear more about the actual that year and a half that you were there mm -hmm. um what because i i've only been out of the country overseas once and i went to indonesia for a month cool but aside from that you haven't traveled that that's, that's my that's my experience so i've never been to the middle east never been to europe never so i'm just kind of curious yeah. as to uh some specificity moments on, on like what what made it so cool that initial that initial wave i want like i want to hear about the the happy moment in the beginning <laughs> like well it's cool because you're doing something that's so off the beaten path like if yeah, you gave different. me a globe and said pick where you want to move the middle east would have been yeah not at the top of my list didn't really have an interest in the culture but you know my friends were going off to Law school, med school, eye banking jobs, consulting jobs, you know, just making money in New York or Boston or San Francisco. And I was moving to Amman, Jordan. And like, I remember the first day I got there, I'd, I'd lived there when I taught for that summer, but I was on a campus and I was sort of taken care of because I was still like a college kid. But then the first day I flew over there for my job, mm -hmm. I got taken to my apartment and I did. I, I realized I didn't have an alarm clock. I was supposed to be at work the next day, and I had no way. My cell phone didn't work, didn't have service there. I tried walking down the streets, like t looking for an alarm clock at a pharmacy or something, and everyone thought I was just crazy. It was like, it was like TikTok, didn't find one. So I just laid on this couch in my apartment, not even on the bed, waiting for sunrise. And then the call to prayer went off at 5 a.m., and I was like, holy shit, where am I? What have I done? Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, that's exhilarating because you're doing something that's like, scary and different and um you kind of just have to put up or shut up and then what really sunk in for me about the time that i was in the middle east was how culturally different it was from everything i knew 
you know, I grew up in St. Louis. I was a white kid from St. Louis, and then I was a, a white kid in the, the in New England going to college. And all of a sudden, I'm a white guy in Jordan, where half the women are in full hijabs. Um, all the men think you're a spy. The kids laugh at you and point at you. Like, you are, I was the minority. And that was so different for me. And it was important for me to, to, to have that experience and it just led to a lot of introspection because I was so culturally isolated from everything I knew. And I was like, okay, like, who am I? Because I'm in this vacuum of, of culture from everything I've grown up with and been comfortable with. So I got to figure out what I'm about. And so I spent a lot of time just like reading, you know, self-help books and all sorts of like, you know, watching a ton of TV and, you know, partying with my expat friends. But a lot of it was just like, what do I want out of life? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it came down to I wanted to finish my book and I wanted to move to LA and see what happens. Yeah. So it sounds like you, you, you it sounds like you, because like you said, you didn't really pick up the language. Nope. Um, and so were you more often than not, not treated like, uh, was like as far as, like you said, they think you're a spy or like, is that? Maybe I was. <laughs> um, no, I mean, like, I spoke taxi cab Arabic, so I could tell the taxi where I wanted to go. I could say left, right, straight, count to yeah. ten, you know, all those things. Um, but are people friendly with you? But, on, yeah, they're all, they'll like, speak English or at least try. They love America. We have such a big, like, military and spy presence there that they support. The king is well-connected to the U.S. And, yeah, I never felt uncomfortable. Even during the Arab Spring, there was nothing in Jordan that made me feel unsafe okay no violent protests or anything yeah but it was cool you know sitting at my desk and this guy next to me who's from egypt is watching the tahrir square protests live streaming on his computer and his brother's there and i'm reading al jazeera and getting a very different perspective on the whole situation than what people in the states mm-hmm. were getting which mm-hmm. i never would have appreciated if i had been back in the states watching that all unfold um it was just it was just cool to get yeah. a totally different perspective. Yeah, because I guess like when I was in Indonesia, let's say some things that I took away that was interesting is uh, taking for granted in America the diversity that we have around us. Is, oh yeah, is so when on I'll, so many levels too. Exactly. So when I was in Indonesia, looking around, I'm like, oh my gosh, everybody's of the same ethnicity here. <laughs> like, I almost kind of forgot yeah. that that's how like. And the landscape's the same. It's tropical. Yeah. The states have everything. So every everybody is of the, of the same ethnicity, and then like I'm I, like I stood out too, and I'm in the states. I'm not like a tall dude. Yeah. But in Indonesia, I'm You're like tall. I'm You're like giant. I'm like a head, yeah. <laughs> like a head above everybody. And there were times at like different tourist spots and stuff where like a group of like Japanese tourists would or other tourists would kind of spot me and think I was some sort of famous dude yeah. because Macaulay like, Culkin. Oh. So I I I'd get asked for like selfies with with random tourists and stuff. But um th- cool. one one other thing that I took away, I don't know cuz I that's what I'm curious about too is is um when I think about the states and the homeless in the United States yeah. There's a lot of like you know off every freeway you get off there's like the the panhandler and the tent villages and yeah and the be- the begging for the money with the sign yeah. in Indonesia what I noticed was in the poorer communities 
instead of like there weren't any there there was none of that they were supported to some extent probably i don't know but the instead of just sitting at the at an intersection asking for money they helped direct traffic yeah and people like tip as they kind of went around like they'd help people get through because it's crazy the the, the traffic's oh, crazy to, it's all motorcycles and stuff <laughs> so, little mopeds so it's like helping people through directing but they would actually make make use of themselves yeah. and, and contribute back and make money that way versus just asking for it but i don't know well, what do you think that comes down to is that some sort of feeling a part of society as opposed to the homeless in the states who are just completely on the margins you know maybe they feel connected and supported and at least seen as a human you hear all these stories about homeless people who say like i haven't been looked in the eye in years mm-hmm. and that's like, like people need eye contact it's important for our socialization and emotional well-being i think um but i, I wonder what the difference is there and why maybe the, the and like also the socioeconomic gap between homeless and lower class is not as wide mm-hmm. so you're not like oh i don't have an apartment like because that people slightly above you are just living on dirt floor shanties yeah, yeah. yeah so maybe there's some element of not feeling quite so disenfranchised i don't know it could yeah but no i'm curious as to yeah if there's any if there's any anything like that you picked up while you were there on on that could be interesting to, to point out or if it was i don't know but mm. you could always dive into your your what you're actually doing there like that's <laughs> just playing roller coaster tycoon man because because <laughs> i i've noticed before like on on your podcast when yeah. you bring when you bring it up that's most people i think go to like oh he's an imagineer yeah kind of like like i don't know what the, the what the reality of, of what you're up to was. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much an Imagineer who doesn't work for Disney. The theme park design world is very small. It's a small industry. Everyone eventually works for Disney. Everybody wants to work for Disney. Everyone's yeah. obsessed with Disney. We call them foamers because they're foaming at the mouth for Disney. And that was a big realization for me was when I went to... We went to the big theme park design convention in Orlando, which was a million square feet of anything and everything you could put in a theme park from trash cans and benches to mm. animatronic fire breathing dragons and like i wish i had acid or something like i walked around that place because it was so wild so much sensory overload but we went to dinner at one of the disney world hotels and the fireworks display were going off and this employee i was with started crying because she was so moved and i was like i'm in the wrong business this is not it's just it was like a big like a yeah, huge breakthrough for me yeah you didn't you didn't yeah you didn't love it yeah, yeah and we were at we were at the you know the industry panels where like the the biggest names in theme park were telling how they how their careers progressed and the same girl started crying again and i was like who are these guys like what is, i don't care right i didn't care I, I was like i'm not at the wrong convention and i gotta yeah. figure out what my convention is so that was a big realization that i needed to bounce from theme park design yeah it's good to know yeah. these things. It, it reminds me of uh, of my, I mean, it reminds me of, I don't know if we've talked about this much, but I have my engineering degree yeah. in mining engineering. Mining. So I feel very similarly <laughs> to, because, uh, I don't know, I, thinking about working in a mine, Yeah. 
feels similar to living in Jordan. <laughs> like, I feel like... Careful. Like, <laughs> with, uh, like, I mean, there's normally... In terms of like you being there and feeling not a, not not a part of the yeah. of the space and yeah, um, just out of your element. Yeah, like that's you know that's more of, of what I'm referring to with uh, living out in the in the middle of nowhere, Nevada, just for the summer that I that I worked the job, my internship. Yeah. But you probably would make a lot of money, which you know I can't I can't say that my job wasn't amazing working for a theme park design company. <laughs> It was literally a dream job. It just wasn't my dream job. And I had to get out of the way for whoever's dream job it was because I, every day, woke up and did not want to go to work. I wanted to just run through the wall like the Kool-Aid man and get the fuck out of there. Yeah. And I couldn't, it got to the point where I couldn't deny it and I quit. So, and I also wanted to finish my book and I'd been working on it slowly, but I realized that to really finish it, and get it to the place where it was going to be ready to go, I needed to work on it full time. And I wanted to find a job that would give me a little bit more freedom in my schedule and maybe reinforce some of the skills I'd need to be a published author. So I was starting to looking everywhere for other jobs, and I found this job on Craigslist working for, it was, it was very vague. It was like, recently published author needs an assistant. Um, like, Reach out with your resume, and I'll tell you more. And I was like, oh, cool. I was applying to all sorts of jobs like that. And I sent my resume in and this woman agreed to meet with me and it turns out she was a dog psychic who had just published a book called The Secret Language of Dogs and she was a dog psychic to the stars and she had just published this book and it was doing well and she was getting all these like TV deals and she needed to run her social media and build her website. So I, I just like took a job with her. I quit my theme park design job and started working for a dog psychic. And that was when you, you already made the move here and you were yeah. kind of trying to figure out how to. This is after a year in transition LA. out of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was, it was great. I met with her like once a week and then I was left to my own devices otherwise. And I built her website and ran her social media and produced little videos for her and, you know, wrote treatments and essays and all sorts of stuff. Um, and it was cool. It was a, cool way to learn how to build a brand and see how her book was doing and what did you learn about the actual act of dog psychicness it works man i got <laughs> to sit in on a lot of sessions and every time i'd go in thinking oh my god this is going to be so embarrassing when it doesn't work yeah. these people are paying so much money like i wish i was i wish i could crawl out of my skin i don't want to be here and at the end of every session, the client is just sobbing about their relationship with their mother and how it projects onto their dog and how they figured out the answer to their dog's misbehavior. And I was blown away every time. It's, it could be chakras. It could be um, spirit guides. It could just be like deep psychology. But um, Jocelyn, the dog psychic, basically used the session as a way to get the client on the couch and figure out what they were being... What, where they lack discipline in themselves that was extending to their dog. Because mm -hmm. your dog is just a reflection of you. Like my dog. Yeah, yeah you just project. Lazy good girl because I. All right, we're talking about dog psychics. So yeah. I was curious about. All right, so more of the. When, when initially, when you said that, I was thinking, oh, she. Is a psychic that's a dog. She reads a dog <laughs> and then can talk to the dog. But it's more of like. 
meets the owner yep. helps solve their relationship and she does some stuff with the dog too it's all gray yeah yeah no that's cool but it's I mean could be placebo it could be a lot of things but it gets through to people and it like blew me away every time and it was a means to an end that job was a means to an end for me yeah and I got to the point where my book was finished and I started slacking off a little bit in my dog psychic creative director job and I got fired mm. and it was just as I was launching the Kickstarter for my book to finally get the final I think I raised like six thousand dollars to just do all the publishing stuff and the legal stuff and um, I was terrified because I was like oh I just I don't have a job mm. now and this mm -hmm. book is not gonna make me a lot of money um, so started doing like freelance web design graphic design just you know gig jobs here and there mm -hmm. and um, yeah just kind of like put the book out and did that stuff for a while but that was a weird time yeah to be it fired by cool. a dog psychic after giving up your you know cushy theme park design well, job I mean like you said it wasn't the uh, it wasn't you, you you weren't looking to transition into a dog psychic no. yourself or anything no. like that so it's all good it happens yeah um I don't know where to, where to, anything on your mind? Well, that, in that period of time where I was doing theme park design and, or not, or graphic design and web design, um, I was trying to get a modeling agent because I thought it would be a cool way to make money that didn't involve staring at a computer um, and pixels all day. Mm -hmm. And... It took me a while, but through some friends and connections, I found an agent and realized, oh, this is way more fun than what I've been doing. And it took, I don't know, about a year of having modeling jobs here or there before I really said, okay, this is what I'm going to do full time. And it was, a, it was a job that I had in Mount Shasta, which I've talked about with Zach Staben and Steph Cordial on my podcast, but... I just realized how fun it could be. I went to Mount Shasta and went trail running for two days. Um, and it was something I would have paid to do and they mm -hmm. paid me. And I was like, right. okay, got to do this now. Yeah, I guess. Okay. So as far as modeling goes, yeah. um, I, I freelance primarily as a script supervisor. So I get to, like I've been on, on certain commercials like, I don't know, like Kohl's and stuff. Yeah. Where I'm like, oh, these are, or like, or like the Jeff Dow stuff. I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. these are actual legit models that are brought in to help the casino look cool yeah. or whatever. And sometimes there's experiences where it just doesn't look fun to me. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I feel bad for the model a lot of times. Yeah. But I don't know if I'm just like, I don't know if the model is maybe having a great time and I just don't know it or I'll give you an example. Yeah. So for like Coles, I'm I'm sure you do plenty of this stuff where I I get to be in the back with the director and hearing the agency talk and mm -hmm. like I'm like I'm I have the the cool the cool sheets of like all their layouts and what they want to capture on the day. So I'm kind kind of going to my director brain a little bit. Like if I was directing this, yeah, like how would I even do this? And it's very weird to where it's not even the director's job really to sign off on a thing. It's like the it's agency. Yeah. So it's yeah. like the model goes out there and it's like, we just, we're just gonna, we're just shooting you from here to here. Mm -hmm. We want to get some dancing. Mm -hmm. They play the music. 
and the model goes out there, smiles, and does her thing. Yeah. For who knows how long. It's like an indefinite amount of time because there's no direction there. It's just right. like, go out there. Dance. Agencies kind of whispering to themselves. The director's kind of like looking back at them. Yeah. <laughs> seeing if like, okay, are we getting it? So from my perspective, I'm just like, I don't know what the model is even thinking here. How is like, this fun? How, how do they play it off? Like, how do you, How do you make that stuff work when... You have you have to, it's your job. <laughs> yeah. Um, What's the thought process? Cause you, if you talk about it, you, all right, I'll let you. Answer. I mean, there's so much downtime in modeling. You know, you have days where you go to set and you're on set for ten hours and you are working, actually modeling for less than an hour, easily, sometimes even less than that. But you also have days where you are running back and forth doing sprints for eight hours straight. Um, but it's usually the former. It's usually a lot of downtime mm-hmm. punctuated with moments of work. And that's what I love about it is that I get to have my downtime. I get to go to the snack table. I get to go to Crafty and eat mm-hmm. the chocolate-covered almonds and the, the peanut good, butter. The whatever. good stuff, yeah. But when it's time to go, it's, it's time to go. And I have to put everything aside and do my job really, really well. I can't half-ass it. When I was working at the theme park design company, I'd go into my job for eight hours a day and I was on Reddit all day. Like I was applying for other jobs all day. I was like, I could get all my work done in, I don't know, an hour or two and then just sit there and fuck off. But when they call action, you, can't, you cannot fake it. You cannot half-ass it. And I like that pressure because you kind of have to get into a, a flow state where you're so focused that you can, I don't know, you can power through any sort of, Discomfort. This, when we did the shot, the shoot in uh, New Mexico, we had a hiking scene. Where we were up on this hilltop, this ridge, and it was fucking freezing. And we were supposed to. We were a t-shirt and jeans, and we we're supposed to like holding hands, strolling like we're having the best day of our lives. Where like we're in sound of music, but it was so cold and so bitter. The wind was so bitter, and one of the models was like, complaining about it. And I was like, he's a new model, and he. Um, I remember that. You can't yeah. do that, man. Like it, A, it reflects poorly on you as a model, our agency, which we're all represented by. And he was just, I don't know. It was a... Sure. You just have to do it. Yeah. I, I, guess, I guess my thing is more from the director mindset on as I continue to gain experience in the in the director chair and all this like even after directing the feature like I feel like I'm so much more in tune with like what I'm looking for and stuff but I have a hard time witnessing actors jumping into situations where they're not being told what is needed wow that's modeling so so much of that yeah so that's what I experience more on the modeling side is like they never get direction yeah so I guess like we get ushered to set and no one's told us that we have lines they don't they, we haven't even seen the storyboards to know what our actions are and they just somehow expect us to magically know it or figure it out but yeah no one's sitting down and rehearsing with us most often yeah because what I, what I oh, so then what happens in those situations I assume is like they start rolling and you just start doing something yeah, you, and then and then they stop you and like wait wait, wait we need you to say this yeah, you wing it. You do what you think they need, uh, and sometimes you're right, and sometimes you're wrong. But if you've been on enough sets and yeah, enough yeah. types of commercials, enough types of shoots, you can kind of figure it out. Yeah, and you know how to peek at the storyboards and, and 
you know, talk to your your other talent and be like, you know, what are we doing? What is this for? Is it e-com? Is it print? Is it video? Is it commercial? Is it... Yeah, like, what do they have you do? Like, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, because we talk about this a lot on my podcast, but we usually have the least information. And it's on you to figure it out, usually. So the better you are at that, the better of a model you'll yeah, be. Yeah, because it sounds like you, you probably have, like, your go-to, your go-to stuff per situation mm-hmm. so kind of start there and it's the same with auditions you rarely know what you're walking into right um but you just got to make the best of it and you have to you have to come to work you have to come and you know do your job or else you're not going to make a paycheck for mm-hmm. the next month you know so I, that's the pressure i love as well is like you're constantly proving how much you want the work and if you're not you won't work mm-hmm. so I like that how much do you how much stake do you put into productions I I don't know if it matters on your end at all but uh, when productions don't live up to like because you have your expectation of professionalism mm-hmm. and when those around you aren't acting up to your level mm-hmm. how do you you can't be a diva about it you know if they forgot breakfast or they don't bring like don't have water available like there's certain things where yeah you should say something or you know at least talk to your agency afterwards or you know there's, there's certain mm-hmm. human rights and like right, you know right. just it's like osha standards but other than that like shoots are disorganized and shoots are rushed and you're often not considered and if you're not okay with that and you think you deserve to be pampered all the time I hope you're a supermodel because you're not going to be. So, I don't know. You just deal with it. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds yeah. right. Yeah. Just yeah. grin and bear it. Be thankful for the work. If you're on set, that's a good day. So now so now modeling is your life. Yeah, it pays the bills. Pays the bills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most of them. <laughs> okay. Um... Let's jump into, let's see what I got here. All right, I want to talk, this is kind of like a general, general kind of topic here, but, all right, let's, let's talk about quarantine in the world. Yeah. And... I've noticed a lot of people. We talked about a little, talked about this a little bit before, but um, are kind of look are are looking in, inwards because we're we're given this time to think more than yeah. like ever before. There's not a lot of external stimuli. Yeah, so a lot of people are reassessing who they are and where they want to go and transitioning into new fields and yeah and. And that kind of stuff. Like I, I guess one thing that I was working through, um, which I had never worked had to work through before, and it's just happening now, <laughs> is uh, I was writing a, a feature script, mm-hmm. and I've never okay, like like you said, like I'm, I feel like I'm pretty good about just making stuff regardless of what other people think it's like okay yeah. i have my goals i know why i'm making it i i'm gonna learn from it and then i'll reassess and make something else better like whatever i'll keep growing and i'll keep learning um 
But on this latest story that I've been writing, mm-hmm. um, I I don't know how to. I'm trying to lead into it in a creative way. But I. All right. Band-aid, right let's off. See, let's see, where do I go? Um, I felt like it's interesting when you have to take the world around you mm-hmm. and think about how you're being perceived and that, that dictating some of your creative decisions. So How when, you're being perceived. Yeah. yeah. So there, there's, there's two versions of, of yourself, right? Like I think about there's a version that I believe I am and this is how I act and this is how I feel and this mm-hmm. is my intent. And then there's a different part, there's a different you that is the perceived version. So when you say a thing, somebody thinks something of you yeah. and they don't know what's going on in your head or how you're saying it. Right. Um, so and on the writing perspective, one thing that I was doing is me and my writing partner, Jamie, were writing a story about an ethnicity that wasn't us mm-hmm. and uh and so therefore you have to kind of dig into that family and the culture yeah and we're trying to get the story like have some early producers kind of look at it and see like hey is this we want to make sure we're doing this right and because we want to be respectful to the culture and that time period and does this make sense and that kind of thing and a lot of initial backlash we were getting was wait you guys like who you can't do this like who which this this isn't your story to tell yeah so yeah <laughs> so it's a, it's a touchy subject waters. It's, a, it's a touchy subject now i think we we kind of figured out our we kind of worked our way out of that mm-hmm. um in, in an interesting way where we kind of had to change the ethnicity of the of the family to kind of have it it made more historical sense to the time period which was good and then um we leaned into more of what we have experienced directly in mm-hmm. but i've never had that issue before where it's like wait you're telling a story about an agoraphobic life coach who's a woman and yeah. where like nobody nobody told me like oh you shouldn't be telling the story or you're not a woman so why is or like whatever right so I had to think about if like I don't I don't put a lot of stake into my ethnicity like I I don't think much of it or what other people think of me people know we don't know what I am when they look and say hey like who like what are you I'm like why does it matter but um I had to kind of do a lot of a lot of thinking in that moment with like wow multiple people have have hit me back up with like this isn't a story you should be telling. Yeah. And that was interesting to me, and that kind of helped. And it kind of, I don't know if it helped, but um, it was weird having to look at myself from a different perspective and think about well, like that comment in general and, and stuff. I don't I mean, appropriation is a hot topic right now, of course. Huge. But I think fiction and most writing that's not autobiographical is telling someone else's story whether it's someone very similar to you or someone very different from you it's it's a way to see 
like you were talking about people who read are more empathetic because you have to be able to see through someone else's eyes mm -hmm. and there's a way to do that that is careful and deliberate and um almost like precious about that like the the opportunity to tell someone else's story but it just gets into politics of like you know representation and i don't know it's yeah well because i mean we talked about you how you basically you had you you were telling a story of like you never experienced childbirth yeah. and yeah like you had to go into a place and channel mm -hmm. channel someone who you are not to, to tell a story and yeah and you came from a position where you were being i mean i had direct access to her too which right. changes it a little bit but i think if your intentions are good and you're you do the work it's it shouldn't be as big of a problem as it's made out to be yeah because i mean that's i think you you I mean you answered the question because yeah a memoir is different i feel like in a way yeah when you're doing a non-fiction thing it's like oh there's the there's a thing but when you're fabricating something it might change things a little bit too well and then but, you have to be very careful with what you're fabricating and what kind of impact it's going to have and that's when it gets slippery but all of Hollywood is just embellished, fabricated yeah. stories that may have once been based on truth and then are made to be dramatic to sell tickets. No, for sure. For, for sure. But, uh... So what, is, what ended up happening to the story? Did you just pivot it a little bit? Yeah, the story, the story, like I said, um... <sighs> oh, okay, let's think. So the interesting, interesting thing about all right, I guess I can elaborate a little bit on yeah. the weirdness of that in general for me was uh, I did the one of those DNA tests before. Um, oh yeah, like twenty three like, and me. Yeah, one of the, one of those, and because um, growing up, like kids in elementary school would always ask what I was, and yeah. I'd have to go to my parents and be like, "What am I yeah. like?" What do I tell these people? And I always got shrugged off. It was kind of weird. My neither parent would really just give it to me straight. Right. So I'm like, "There's something here. You guys aren't telling me. Like, what's the what's the deal?" Um, they would both bitch, both just say like, "Oh, you're Spanish. Like, just tell them you're Spanish." And I'm like, "Okay." Um, so that's kind of just what I went with. And I'm like, uh, mm -hmm. um, I like that people guess and stuff, but." Um, but doing the DNA test, yeah, it confirmed the Spaniard background, like the that's Spain, and then so mostly like let's say like two thirds Spaniard, mm -hmm. one third like Native American, Mexican. Cool. And uh, so when I think about some of the, the early the early pushback that I got, yeah, which is frustrating to me is um I, I i don't know like i feel like it's the i don't know if they saw an image of me or like how they how they who they thought i was but i think okay when a when you try to get a story told 
and in this particular climate right now everybody's against the white man right it's like we don't want white men telling our black stories we don't want white men telling these stories like they've been telling them for history let's get somebody else's perspective right um so for this i was kind of digging into like oh uh so like i have a native american background i didn't grow up with a Native American background, culture, I didn't yeah. have any culture. I didn't grow up on a reservation, like any, like any of that. Like yeah. I don't have any of that with me. But one of the one of the critiques I got back was like, why don't you switch the ethnicity to Native American and be kind of cool seen from that perspective? Yeah. And I'm like, well, it's no different for me. Like, I don't have culture in that other culture, and I don't have culture in this other culture. But all people care is that you're part Native American. Yeah. So not it's that like, it's your your cultural identity right but that's the weird thing it's to a me. bloodline right yeah but. no i get it i mean it's it's all very pc right now it's all a little frustrating but it, it, you have to kind of dance between these rules yeah. that people are making up as they go but i get it yeah so what we ended up doing which i think is actually cool is it because it's, it's a 1970s period piece yeah and um, we ended up changing the the lead family. The lead guy is uh, is a mix between uh, Korean and American. Like, so Jamie, my co-writer, mm -hmm. has a, a Korean mother and white father. Oh, perfect. So we just kind of took her parents. And yeah. And then it's kind of it kind of makes sense with that period too, because there was a Korean War. A lot of a lot of people, a lot of military men came back with mm -hmm. with Korean Wars. wives. And uh, so it all plays very nicely, and it and it gives like this nice diverse diverse look at that period. And well, it sounds like you found an answer you weren't even looking for. Oh, it's kind of like the obvious answer. Yeah. But it was I don't know. It's just the frustrations of that initial pushback was interesting and in, in the first for me. What was your initial reaction to that pushback? What was your visceral emotion? I I, I try. Okay, here's my, my outlook is, especially in this, in this time right now, where I think, I, I've always thought this was treat, it's, it's the classic quote of be the change you want to see. Yeah. So if, when I meet people, I don't, I never ask them what their ethnicity is. I don't care about what their cultural background is. Like, it, I look at you for who you are and see how you treat what your decision making is, how you treat others, yeah. like that kind of thing. And yeah. I try to take from my experience, and then, and then of course, um, there are, there are other things that factor in if if I get that experience, but I don't judge you based off off that kind of stuff. So, when my initial reaction is, like I try to veer off of. I don't like I don't want to come across as like entitled or something. It's like I deserve no. to tell this story. But um my my gut reaction was, but like you didn't ask me like what research I did, what books I've done, right. what I who I've interviewed. It's all very thin sliced. It's like I, I'm doing it I'm talking to you right now because I wanna make sure this is done right and I'm hoping for help to make sure this is handled properly. Like I'm yeah. I'm actively seeking help in that span but i'm being shot down during that process versus versus being assisted so i was just really confused as to like why am i getting this response i'm trying so hard it's to do the, it right that's just the temperature of the room right now it's a 
You shouldn't tell other people's stories, apparently. For now. <laughs> It'll swing back or something. So that's, uh, that's, well, I'm glad it worked out. It's a frustrating situation. So it's, it comes, I don't know, it comes back into, and, and we can, like it still comes back to the how do we become a part of the, the change that we want to see. Right. And well, that's the leading by example. Just yeah. And that was kind of, I guess, one of my hopes was leading by example with, with the telling it. But <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a different thing. So you have to get to the end and tell it, just nail it. And then they're like, oh, okay, you can do that. But yeah. they're not going to let you get to the end. But yeah, we, we definitely thought long and hard about it. And like the, the dream, of course, would be like kind of similar to your dream with She Can Fly is is write the story mm-hmm. and then have it get picked up and directed to and kind of yeah. see the vision through. Um, but then, so then that was kind of the whole reason for why we leaned into the change is this, the issue is not going to go away even if they let you write it. If you're gonna direct it, it's not. Wait, it's like the directors don't look like the family. Let's, you know, that whole thing. So that just made it easier to, yeah, nip it. But I'm curious. Yeah. What else you've gone through in this time of introspection and isolation? Because I've certainly struggled with it, and I've certainly thought about who I am and what I want, and mm-hmm. adjustments I can make. So I'm curious what insights you've had I feel like I've definitely had a nice opportunity to develop a, a strong routine to keep mm-hmm. to keep my sanity and I, feel, important. and I feel like that's helped give me building blocks to uh, making sure I'm staying on track with who I am and, and mm-hmm and whatnot um so i i guess i could i could jump into a little bit of my of my daily routine i have yeah tell me because i'm bad at mine i have my calendar you've seen my you've seen my calendar three months (laughs) my three-month calendar we're in september now which means i get to erase august Mm -hmm. and put up november it's gonna go up there it's gonna be scary holidays man and then at the bottom, there's like room for some some list items mm-hmm. on like to dos and stuff. And I have my my daily five uh, action item list that I make sure I do every day. What are those? Um, it's pretty much my morning routine. One of them I've been slacking on because I added it recently. Yeah. Uh, so like I said in November, I picked up reading every day. So I made sure to continue that. It's like thirty minutes. Read at least thirty minutes. Um, I my my apartment complex opened up the gym when everything was Ooh. kind of reopening up. Yeah, and it's been it stayed open. It's pretty small. It only fits like two people. So something though. So no, it's great. It's great. I haven't had a gym in forever. Yeah. So I'm like, all right. I wake up. I have my morning tea. Mm-hmm. I've picked up tea during quarantine. <laughs> nice, pleasant. Because I, I, I was always a hot chocolate guy. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I don't do coffee. So when I go to a coffee shop, it's mm-hmm. like 
hot chocolate, please. Yeah, some mocha. Um, so I was trying to cut cut down on the sugar, so I switched to tea. Yeah. I've been experimenting with teas for the first time. I There's just, a whole wide world of teas out there. Yeah. So I've I've been sticking with uh, the herbals because mm-hmm. I'm I'm trying to stay away from the caffeine. Yeah. So and plus they're kind of a little heavier. We tried a rooibos, Roy, rooibos. It's a good one. Is that a brand or is that a? It's a flavor. It's very like vanilla y. I like it. Okay. I think it's non caffeinated, decaffeinated. Okay. Give that a whirl. Rooibos. R O I B O O S. Okay. Rooibos. Sounds fancy. Yeah. Like All right. South Africa or something. So I have my morning tea and my morning protein bar with mm-hmm. my tea. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then once once the tea is down, I I go and I do trash picking. Really, David Sedaris. Is that a David Sedaris thing? Yeah, he walks like twenty miles a day picking up trash. Dang. Yeah. So I had an experience at my new my new apartment. Um, been there since April. So like right as quarantine hit, like I got into a new place, mm-hmm. but um, I was still because we had a Taco Bell nearby, <laughs> and it's a it's it's a very nostalgic yeah. for me. So I knew I'd be tempted to uh, to grab to grab one early on to get out of the way. So what I what I discovered is like it's, it's a walk away. It's like down the block. So I hit up Taco Bell, and on the walk home, I realized how disgusting the streets were oh there's how disgusting taco bell was <laughs> shame on you no taco bell's fine yeah um, yeah streets are dirty man yeah so it was like i don't feel comfortable walking home on this particular side of the street. like there's a nice open side mm-hmm. on ramp on the i don't want to say it but the front of the apartment is like super nice green grass all yeah. this stuff oh, wide open clean the back side is not yeah so i just was like this is disgusting so uh, at one point um i was like oh like that's something i could actually make a difference on like i could physically see a, a change yeah if i just went by and, and picked it up myself so i ended up one day buying the the reacher the grabbers and the bag of trash bags and nice. and committed to doing one bag a day how long does that take about an hour yeah so an hour every morning i go out and trash pick uh, so you I found some cool stuff no cool <laughs> on on day one i i got a i got a dead mouse oh. um but it's it's kind of like the I mean, you could imagine what you find. It's the typical stuff. Mm-hmm. It's the Rappers. addictive stuff. It's the addictive stuff. Yeah. It's alcohol. Mm-hmm. It's cigarettes. Mm-hmm. It's fast food. Mm-hmm. And then continuing on from fast food, it's like coffee stuff. It's like Starbucks. Really? So it's so interesting. It's literally the four food groups of addiction. <laughs> yeah. So that's like all, that's the bulk of it. Yeah. Because um, people just leave, you know. People just leave their stuff out. I've seen some people just throw things out of their car. It drives me nuts. Yeah. Litter bugs, get out of here. So the cool thing with that is like I've, I've had the chance to really become one with my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Is the street, the initial street I couldn't walk down before has been clean and maintained because pretty Because you made the change. 
because I started the process and somehow like bigger items just disappeared after I cleaned around them and stuff. Yeah. Like I'm like, oh cool. Um, but now like I see joggers going down, I see people walking dogs. I'm like, oh like I'm happy. Yeah. So that's a part of my my routine is uh, is that. Well, that's I mean, I don't know who said it, but in terms of how to be the change you want to see in the world, start with your own the garden in your own backyard, which is what you did. You know, mm-hmm. don't have this grand plan to save the. I don't know, save the islands from sinking or whatever. So, what are those islands that are sinking? All of them. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you start with the first actionable step you can take, which is picking up some trash around your building. Yeah, because that, I guess that was, um, yeah, I guess I, I also equated it to like the self help books with, yeah. uh, you know, I guess one of the early items that they normally talk about is uh, like making your bed, cleaning your, making sure you're, Making sure you're in order and you're clean, because mm-hmm. if you can't, if you can't keep yourself organized in yeah. your space, then it's hard to kind of bounce board off of. Clean space, clean mind. Yeah. So my thought was on the whole world view of the quarantine and mm-hmm. everything that was going on, was uh, like, oh, we we want to see this vast big change in the world and see reform in all these different areas, but we don't have a clean room. Probably not. <laughs> So I'm like, and I mean, that's where all the anger people are unhappy, and all this anger is coming out in unproductive ways because people are so frustrated, but they're so I don't know scattered at the same time that it's just not productive. Well, it's because people don't know what to do. Right. It's such a big problem that it's overwhelming. But what can you do? Is start in your own backyard. Do what you can. Yeah, I mean that's that's always what I'm about. It's like, what do I have the power to do myself, mm-hmm. um, rather than getting stuck on things I can't control. Right. So that's yeah. Um, we can we can dig more into that. But uh, after trash picking, yeah, I come home and put my put my trash picker down and change and head down to the gym, get mm-hmm. a little little session, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, I come back up and then before and then I and then I eat my then I finally eat again, and then I hit the roof because we have like a cool little lounge up yeah, on the roof. Yeah, get some sun and hit get my vitamin D yep. round two mm-hmm. plus the reading mm-hmm. and I double dip on on tanning up. And so I've tanned up for the first time in like forever. Nice. And uh, and and been reading some books. So then that's kind of like the end of my routine is right. Tea, trash pick. So yeah, what time does it great. start? I wake up I, maybe around like 7. And when does your routine end? Noon or 1-ish. So you're like halfway through the day. Halfway through the day. And of course early on, even still now, um, the objective of the day was like, just get through the day. Yeah. So I was like, okay, half my day is locked in with my daily routine. Mm-hmm. I just got to figure out what to do with the rest of well, that's what I've struggled with is that, you know, for the last six years, my days have been just running around auditions and running around to do podcasts and little projects, little, go to the gym, do this, do that. And now I'm not doing any of that. And I'm, I have too much time because I, I don't know, I haven't been great about finding alternate ways to get that energy out and exercise that pent up kinetic energy. It's, I need to like, have deadlines and have things to do. Yeah. I, I'm not a great self-starter. I'm a great like 
tag along or I'm great. Like I'll join whatever trip you're going on or whatever adventure you want to have. Like I'll be there and I'll be supportive and I'll be have a great attitude, but I won't plan it. And so I'm, that's where I'm struggling is just getting through the, trying to fill the day. And there's, a, there's only so much Netflix you can watch. I can't watch anything. Really? You're not allowed to? No, I mean, like, I, as far as, like, bandwidth goes, yeah. I can't, I can't, like, I don't enjoy watching things. Like, my books is my escape. Yeah. But I haven't enjoyed, like, any TV. I just watch Jeopardy. Yeah. Yeah. Jeopardy. It's engaging. I like trivia. Okay. So, tell me more. About <laughs> Jeopardy? No, about... um. It's all about Final Jeopardy. Je- Final Jeopardy is important. Oh, it's so important. But, yeah, because you, you, you've mentioned, you mentioned that you're trying to find ways to to kind of put your energy toward the toward like getting this out mm-hmm. now i guess for me it was a i mean i'm a i'm a well i'm a planner first of all i'm different in that way you are but i have nothing to plan because we can't get together and, and make short films or like no, anything yeah. so um it was definitely an exercise in fighting those urges of of needing to do something so I don't know what I've done. Like, I almost feel like sometimes I just, I guess my objective is normally like feeling my eyes mm-hmm. and I'll be like, all right, have I been staring at screens? Cause I had this issue early on. That's why I couldn't watch TV was mm-hmm. because I'd go from my phone to the social medias and getting frustrated there into my laptop. Yeah. And like, it's all, all screens. I'll, I'll do some emails and I'm like, Oh, I'll play some video games. And then I'm like, wait, I've just been staring at screens all day. Mm-hmm. But that's where the book is. The book is an escape from a screen. Yeah. And then... Trash picking is an escape. Yeah. So my whole morning routine is like non-screen related. That's good. Uh, but I had to um, really fight the urge on, on being busy. And it's been difficult. It's super difficult because... Yeah, it's just... You need outlets. You need... And like social, the lack of socialization is very mm-hmm. difficult. Mm-hmm. The lack of engagement with other people, like just seeing facial expressions, and I don't, it's just—it's got to the point where I'm kind of beaten down by. It. It's like, well, this is the new normals or whatever. But at the same time, it's very frustrating. So, what have you done to keep the social engagement? Have you were you were you one of the ones that was like zooming a lot early on to just like a little bit, or, not or not a ton, but. I spend half my time up in the mountains with my girlfriend, which is great because I'm like quarantined with someone. Um, but then when I'm in LA, it's more difficult. I'm in my apartment and just kind of lonely. And um, I've been playing golf with a few friends once a week or so, and I've been going surfing with a couple friends. Um, but I'm actually moving in with one of my friends because I'm so sick of being lonely. Mm. So I'm moving into his apartment because he had a room become available, and I'm just like I don't enjoy yeah, sitting yeah, yeah. here alone anymore. <laughs> no, for sure. That's, uh, having a roommate is a game changer. Yeah, and I've, I've always been an anti-roommate person. I was an only child for most of my life. and um, But when I don't have a lot to do, I can get into trouble if I'm left to my own devices. So I think it's good to have 
people around to engage with and it's just even if it's the uh it's kind of almost better to have the negative interactions than yeah no it's something yeah just something to like feel someone's presence is, yeah because uh, i know i know like i've been stuck with hunter for a quarantine so yeah. i know it's almost feels like an old married couple kind of vibes where it's just like back mm-hmm, and forth mm-hmm. but I have definitely been blessed um, with with that. With no, I think it's better to have someone than not because I, the the weeks I've spent alone have been the most difficult, for sure. Um, and again, I could be better about trying to get whatever socialization I can in, or you know, going. I go for hikes up Griffith Park and go surfing and stuff like. But it's like, yeah, I, I, there was days where I went on two hikes. It's like, how many hikes can you go on? <laughs> you know so many hours in the day when you're not working now work is picked back up and I'm almost back to the same level of work that I had before quarantine but I don't have the same level of auditions right. auditions are what filled my days and so filling and I don't miss the auditions I miss the things on the calendar mm-hmm. I miss the stuff to do um, so that's put me in an interesting place thinking about my future in terms of where I want to be <clears throat> and where you know how I want to make my money and how I want to spend my time and figuring that out now. I have a lot of time to think about it. Okay. Yeah, because you said, you said earlier when I was like, uh, I see you, I think, I don't know what I said. I was like, you see you as a model or you're like, oh, it pays the bills. So yeah. I, could, I could sense the, the reevaluation in that answer. Well, you know this has been a struggle <laughs> with me in terms of my acting career. Um, and I've always had some sort of self-defeating perspective about becoming an actor yeah 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 because yeah i mean there's a lot of variables that go into it but like i don't love actors i talked about that with hayes on my podcast like we we don't love actors they're very phony and they're not genuine and they're just trying to succeed at it's like the people who just want yeah they don't give yeah Um, there's a lot of that but there's a lot of great actors too but i'd say the rule is that they're relatively phony um, Actors are tough, yeah. But at the same time, <clears throat> I've built up this skill set of auditioning and being on set, and it's pretty much the only professional skill set I have at this point. And I'm not saying that I'm bored of commercials and print modeling, but I've, I'm not challenged by it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because I know that you've also kind of been mentally prepping for moving into the next stage of modeling, too. You're like, oh, I'm going to have the you know i'll get my get my touch of gray here yeah. and then i'll move into that demographic like that yeah, whole, the dad dad category yeah so i know like that's been a, i assume that was kind of the thought process was like that'll just be the thing yeah and just, then i mean as you get farther down the line in the modeling world there becomes less competition so it's easy to have a great career but i'm just at a point where it's not we, I, I need to be challenged yeah so it's more I guess at, at this point it's finding more of that, uh, that assist to to pair with especially if, if you have the time it's like yeah I mean it's yeah. that the assist of the challenge and then just want to make more money like I want to mm. I want to send my hypothetical kids to college money and uh, I'm doing <laughs> fine right now but like I could be making more money and that's my skill set and you know being a series regular doing a feature film every mm-hmm. once in a while and making a good paycheck I'm down with that. So it's 
it's almost more of a financial push. It's just like it's your job. It's my job. It's I mean, it's not my like my validation or my way to get famous or my way to get yeah, yeah, yeah. filthy rich. It's just what I've become good at and what does make me happy when I do a good job and I know that I've done a good job and it, the process of it, the pressure of it makes me fulfilled and yeah, I've been on this path so I might as well fucking embrace it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I shied away because fear of failure, of course, but there's so many actors and they're not all geniuses. Yeah, for sure. They just stuck it out and had blind faith in their potential or something i don't know how they do it but yeah because like you, you shared with me that potential instagram post yeah that i'm sure you're saving it's saved <laughs> but yeah you you kind of hinted in there that like i let, let's talk i guess it would be nice to revisit it's what's on the inside and that week yeah because i remember we talked maybe it was soon after that week that we talked on your podcast. Yeah. Because you were you were talking you were apologizing to your listeners about how you missed a week mm-hmm. because you were. You I was were, coming, yeah. Yeah, and you were like you're drained from yeah. from from that process that. Yeah. Yeah. So looking back at it from this distance, and because you've had a chance to look at like one of the rough rough mm-hmm. cuts. And the stuff rough cuts. That was early on in quarantine. I got to see that. Um, but yeah, I remember being totally drained after that week of shooting like creatively emotionally everything was just gone and i i at the end of that process feeling that low i was like this fuck this like this is way too draining why would i want to do this but then having seen the rough cut and having a chance for my neurotransmitters to re-up and have my you know some serotonin dopamine come back into my body and have some distance from the project and then see the result of it I was like, whoa, this is pretty fucking cool. We made a movie. I don't look like an idiot in it. You know, mm-hmm. I did this, a serviceable job. And yeah, it just it felt really gratifying. And I was proud to be a part of it, proud that I didn't let you down. And, you know, those days were long and hot. And we were in mm-hmm. places with no air conditioning was, in the middle of summer. Yeah, it was this time last year yeah, we were shooting. But it was during like 100 degree days yeah. in apartments where the AC. <laughs> It was like, <sighs> um, but yeah, looking back on it, it's, I can't wait for people to see that mm-hmm. film. You know, I was a little nervous and I was like, well, I did this whole film and people know about it. My friends are following the Instagram page. They're going to see it. And what if it's terrible? But now that I've seen, you know, the rough cut, it's like, mm, you can look yeah, at this. It's okay. It's, yeah. It's, it's watchable. <laughs> yeah. Which is from my own ego perspective no for sure yeah yeah so how eager are you to i don't know how much opportunity you've had since then to do um, yeah to do more of the the acting acting as far as a, a character and an objective not a lot because i haven't pursued it and yeah the theatrical world's been pretty quiet. Because I know you get thrown thrown stuff on, on gigs sometimes where they're like, oh, we're going to have you actually do something now. And then yeah. you kind of, you get into your mode. But, yeah. Okay. Um, but just last night I was on Actors Access looking at feature films and short films and stuff that would be interesting. And I don't know, the itch is 
wants to be scratched and this is not the greatest time for it but i think this space of this time has allowed me to realize that and you know hopefully i'll be able to hit the ground running when things open back up or just carve out a path in this new normal but yeah you know like when i decided i was going to be a full-time model i decided it i was there was no going back i was going to do it i was going to figure it out i was going to take a little while but i was going to figure it out and i did it yeah and i think i could do the same thing with acting Am I going to win an Oscar? Probably not. Do I want to? I don't know. But no, for sure. if I want to make a living as an actor, I, I don't see why that's unobtainable. It's not. It's not. But yeah, no, I like the, um, that, no, that, that's, of course we see eye to eye on that approach. Like, it's not an outcomes goal, outcomes journey. It's a process journey. Yeah, process is the product. Yeah. So. And as long as you're enjoying yourself along the way, you have nothing to worry about. Yeah, no, I guess like my brain is more more churning on like, all right, how could I help Michael scratch this itch? Yeah. And even like in a small sense, just to, because like I was talking with um, with Max, uh, mm-hmm. and he was having like we're all in the same boat. It's like oh, yeah. we just need something to do. And uh, yeah, we were talking about like even seeing what we can what we can work out to to just collab and yeah, I mean, have some fun. But but like yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a new world. But we'll see what happens. But yeah, no, I'm excited to hear that uh, that it's it's that's more of where you're leaning these I have, days. <laughs> I have to be honest with myself and just be realistic about my career and stop fighting it yeah. stop fighting it stop having the resistance stop being scared stop worrying about how i'll be perceived stop focusing on what i think are the negatives of that path or that career or that lifestyle because there's tons of positives and mm-hmm. in any job or any career there's negatives and positives and you can choose to let the negatives dictate your just dictate your motivation or drive or you can focus on the positives and put one foot in front of the other and that's that's the plan I like it now it's just a matter of taking this time to I've got footage from our film I've got footage from Van Life I've got lots of stuff to add to my reel i got all kinds of things I can be doing so it's just a matter of doing those things mm-hmm. while I have the time and then doing the next thing and the next thing yeah yeah that's all it is right that's it that's how you do it that's that that's, that's the whole thing yeah what else you got in that book? All right. I wanted to... I'll bring up some quickie, some quickie topics. Okay. Because I rewatched uh, in my In my research for this podcast, I rewatched the... Um, you and Michelle did mm-hmm. the autocomplete yeah, interview. Yeah, I've watched that a few times. <laughs> so I went and watched that. And one thing that you talked about was every election year, you get a new tattoo. Yeah. I haven't gotten one this year yet. I haven't, I haven't had time to think about it. <laughs> I keep asking it's my girlfriend, quite, like, should I get a new tattoo? And she's like, what do you want to get? And I don't know. I don't care. All right. So this, you might break the streak. I might. It might be the but end. We'll, but, we'll, but we'll see. We'll I have, see. what, Still four time. months? So okay. we'll, we'll see. All right. But it's there's been no thought on it whatsoever. No, I don't have any okay. ideas. Because I watched it, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Right. It's going to happen. <laughs> but, I think everyone should just agree to get some sort of we survived 2020 tattoo in solidarity of this year. Maybe I'll design it and we'll all get it. There we go. 
Matching tattoos. What you got? Great. So uh, one of the other inspirational interviewers that I really look up to and, and wish I could become would be uh, the Hot Wings guy. The oh, Hot Ones? Hot Ones. Yeah. Yeah, like I love... It's like his name Sean something. Evans? Sean Evans, yeah. Sounds right. But, um, yeah, no, I've, I've listened to him on different podcasts where he talks about his research and mm-hmm. how deep he dives in. Because, of course, mm-hmm. all of his interviews are just, like, beautiful. But um, he does the, the segment on there where they do the deep dive. Into the Instagram? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm no. not doing that, but I was inspired by that. I was looking up your socials mm-hmm. and... Oh, boy. So the, the other no, ones are... No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, this, is, this isn't a big deal, but I was curious on more information on this because you don't use this account anymore, but it's your Twitter. Yeah, and my profile picture? Yeah, yeah, the profile picture. So I... <laughs> it's me covered from the neck down in white paint. And I have a mustache and a man bun. And um, so one of the freelance things that I did when I was in that period of like figuring out how I was going to make money after the dog psych fired me. It's your yeah. face. I'm stoked. I don't know what your um, face is. All right, cool. I wrote, I actually did photo essays for an art magazine based out of New York. So I would go to different art exhibits and installations and take photos and write up little articles about different art exhibits. And... I had this idea because this is when I was trying to become a model and I was trying to figure out like ways to muscle myself into the modeling world or get some sort of attention or get an agent or whatever. I don't think I've even had one at that point, but I have a friend who shoots like lots of nudes with like people covered in paint or covered in oil or covered in sprinkles or with a sheet over them. And I thought it'd be really cool to have the experience of being one of his models and then write about it, like being in the art from the inside out. So I did this whole proposal. He took photos of me covered in white paint. He did my whole face and everything, my hair. Um, And then I wrote up this big article about it and they never published it, but (laughs) I thought it was a cool idea. So this is from, this is from that experience. Yeah. That's when he put me in his art. And then I have photos of the final pieces he made Mm that were like his, his cells, his, his art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah, so that was me covered in paint. Yeah, because it's, it's a goofy face too. That's the part that gets me excited the most is like, I don't know what look you have or if it, <laughs> it's kind of like... Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I like it. That was one of my baby topics was getting some background on that. Was that was cool. It was a fun day. All right. Uh, yeah. One thing we haven't touched on it at all, and I guess it'd be might as well hop into it now, is your art, because mm. I know that's been um, one of your outlets. Yeah. These times, um, probably always has been, but on and off, I have a lot of resistance towards art, um, especially commercialization of art. But um, when we were in true lockdown and I couldn't do the podcast, I just started painting a ton, mm-hmm. uh, especially when I was here. Um, but just like, I've always been an artist that's very hard on himself. I'd like try to be as photorealistic as possible. I want things to be very concrete. I've never dabbled in abstract art. And I was just like super sad one night, Mm -hmm. um, and lonely. And I was like, fuck it. I'm going to grab some black paint and see what comes out. I started doing like all these X's and, um, just strange uh abstract 
landscapes and I, I don't know I just I started going with it and I started posting them on Instagram even though I didn't want to and I sold a bunch of them I sold some to a woman in Switzerland I sold some to a guy and uh, I don't even, it's just it was crazy because yeah. I thought I was so stupid for posting them and then people responded to it which was nice mm-hmm. yeah but I've always been an artistic kid. Like when I was little, I always had a stack of paper and markers next to me. I watched Nickelodeon and just draw all day. And then majored in art in college, uh, worked in creative fields. But I don't know, it's something that's very personal to me. Yeah. It's very like precious and it's just my thing. And I, whenever I start trying to sell art, I kind of stop making it because it just feels kind of kills it a little cheap bit. Yeah. yeah like I did this whole series of paintings back when everyone had the iPhone 4 um, and Instagrams could only be squares remember you only have a square Instagram so that square on an iPhone 4 was a 2 by 2 square and I found these 2 by 2 canvases and I had this thought about how people are becoming really good photographers through Instagram just learning through osmosis about composition and lighting and photographic techniques but it's so disposable. You're just flipping past it. You're not considering why it's a good photo. You're not paying, giving it the, the attention it deserves as a good composition. So compared to the fastest method of creating art, which is taking a picture, posting it, scrolling past it, what's the slowest method of making art? Oil painting, because it takes forever for each layer to dry. So I started taking people's Instagrams and doing a one-to-one um, oil painting of their Instagrams, which is fun to just try to paint so tiny and I loved it and I started posting on my Instagram people responded to them and they're like you should sell these like why don't you and I made an Etsy for them and then never made another one so yeah. it's a theme in my life yeah it kind of reminds me actually when you, you talk about the disposableness of like Instagram photos yeah. and stuff have you heard about um, if we had Jamie here I'd have him pull it up pull it up <laughs> uh, David Dobrik uh, I know he's, that a, name. he's a YouTube personality yeah pretty pretty big but uh he's launching a social media platform i think it's called disposable and it's it's designed around uh what, what are the polaroids? polaroids so the idea is i guess it's just like instagram but yeah. the difference is the photos you take you can only use the the forward facing camera you can't do selfies on it right and every photo uses flash and the photos you take, it takes 24 hours for you to see the photo that you took. Mm. So, so it's like going to the film store, getting yeah. it developed. So, so it creates a little bit more preciousness on mm-hmm. what you actually post on this platform because mm-hmm. you have to wait for it and you can't do this. And so it kind of... That's cool. I don't it's know. It's just a response to, yeah, that lack of preciousness. So it kind of reminded me of that. I like that. But, uh, yeah, so you've been... As, as long as I've known you, you've been pretty consistent with creating creating some sort of something visual medium. Yeah. Um, one of your things we can talk about your because I guess um, your serial art collection. Yeah. Or I don't know what you would call it. Serial killer portraits. Yeah. C E R E A L. Right. Serial. Yeah. Uh, it's really weird. I'm not that weird, but I don't know. Um, I just always had this. I love the play on words of serial killers. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and for a while I was like, ah, I'll do something with this one day. Maybe I'll paint portraits of serial killers on boxes of cereal. Or, and then eventually I was like, I'll just make the portraits out of cereal. Yeah. And I started making these ginormous 48 by 48 serial killers out of cereal that were, it's like serial killer like work that's so painstaking and mind numbing. Mm-hmm. But I liked it because you get in this sort of flow state where you're doing this yeah. repetitive task that's very simple and you can listen to a podcast or watch The Office or not. And just let your mind wander. Meditative in ways, yeah. Yeah, it's just, I think I'm the only person who wanted to do that. So it's something I had to make. And I've sold a couple of them, and people have commissioned me to make some other ones. And But, I don't know, they just look cool. So when, so aside from the, uh, the pun of it all, mm-hmm. what drew you to... Like, do you have a do you have an aside fascination of serial killer? I mean, I think kinda it's stuff? funny whenever I tell people that that's what I do. I'm always very like, I'm not that crazy, but they're like, I no, love serial no. killers too. People love them, and I think it's it's because they're the extreme end of the human psychological spectrum. And it's if you can observe it, then maybe you're not it, and you're just curious about how someone functions at that such a distant wavelength of disconnected. Yeah, and. Um, and after creating these artists, sort of reverse engineered a concept wherein the serial killers represent the deadly quality of sugar, and the same way we worship um, these like pop culture icons that are Tricks the Rabbit and Captain Crunch is the same sort of media idolatry we give to serial killers, which is just inviting them into our homes under the guise of a well-balanced breakfast or a complete breakfast while they give us diabetes and shortened lifespans and, you know, mm-hmm. death. So Whoa. that was the, like, the, like, grand uh, concept behind it, but they're really just fun to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Art's all bullshit. Yeah, because I know, because you even have a fictionalized serial killer. Yeah, that's Dexter. Dexter. That's going to San Francisco to a client. Um but that one was took the longest for sure. Yeah, nice. And then you had uh, I know one moment that you posted about too was you had was you had your serial art up at a like a comedy show. Yeah, I did a, two shows at the Hollywood Improv, um, just to like showcase them and get some attention for them. And we auctioned them off to support domestic violence actually at one of the shows. And yeah. It was just cool. It was, it was a perfect venue because it's like punny art. So to have it in a comedy venue, the Hollywood Improv was perfect. And, and that was, uh, one of those was the Tiffany Haddish appearance, right? Yeah. That's kind of cool. Tiffany Haddish freestyling about obscene acts in front of four of my serial killers. It was pretty surreal. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm moving now and I don't know what to do with these big, stupid things. So. Might as well. Yeah. So what has been your creative outlet after you finish tea time and garbage time? I I've I've learned that uh I definitely have to monitor my creative uh like the amount of time I, I dedicate to creative tax tasks each day because yeah. I get tapped super easy these days. Uh, yeah. But I have been, uh, well, the writing. Writing was a big thing early on through mm-hmm. like March through like March through May, maybe. April and May were huge writing months for me. Um, and then 
also the video games yeah. uh, Animal Crossing I, I got and that game is like all creative really I've never played I don't play video games yeah cause uh, I'm sure you've seen your friends put photos up or maybe you, did you, mm-hmm. you don't know about Animal Crossing at all don't know anything about it all right. I've heard well, of it it's a uh, it's like a super kitty game like it, but there's it's pretty leveled um, you, you, ha- you have an island you move to an island that's basically deserted mm-hmm. and through through the process of like making money and stuff you invest in different furniture and you can decorate your house like minecraft can, kind of like you build a world kind of kind of it's a little bit more building this is more decorating okay so i'd be into that probably so at a certain point you, you can kind of like uh mess with the terrain of the island too you can build the rivers and mm-hmm. build ramps up to different stuff and decorate your shop and like all this so it's kind of like it's super cute when you walk through it like your little your little characters all you can mm-hmm. de- you can make your little shirts you can decorate your shirts and with funny glasses and stuff but um that one was like a nice fun no pressure just is it on your phone or your computer it's my nintendo switch oh um so uh that's been like a nice chill way to create without having to create no pressure yeah um so there's there's been that there's the writing and uh like i i did find a couple of ways to shoot two short films during quarantine too um, and those were done with like basically like two person crews where I would do the sound and mm-hmm. direct and then somebody else would do the video and we would just shoot two actors for like a few hours and, yeah. and get that out of my system which that like that's the best because then of course for me it's like all right, I have to write the short mm-hmm. I have to same same process shoot it cool have fun with some people get some interaction and then post-production oh, so i'm like sweet now i have something to edit and i can sit yeah. here and do this but yeah editing is a good task because you yeah. can really get into it and lose yourself so that's what it was early on was editing the feature getting that all done and then jump into writing and then now it's more like i just tapped so what's the plan for the feature it's what's on the inside yeah that's the that's a tough oh man so that now is the time where I get to experiment with the distribution side, and that's right. been that's been kind of all new. Which I knew, like you knew, that that was going to be the case at the, the whole time. Because I would, yeah, people were asking me the whole time, like, "What's your distribution plan?" I'm like, "Dude, we haven't even shot the feature. <laughs> right. Chill, one step at a time. <laughs> Chill." So uh, now that we're there, I've had the chance to um, send it out to either producers that I'm like. Hey, can you like offer any insight, like producer to producer? Like, what can I right. do with this? We're gonna. Do you know anybody that would look at like that kind of that kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, I've gotten some names back too, with like, oh, yeah, I've been through the process recently. I'd recommend these two specific people. Mm-hmm. And then I email them out, and they're like, cool, fill out our thing on our website and submit it. Um, I've only heard back. It's kind of like a weird thing right now. I feel like I'm just dealing with middlemen. Probably, because so, no one knows what's moving forward. I guess if it's already shot, it's not a, the production is not an issue. Right. So maybe they should be wanting it right now. So um, there's this one guy that I met through a filmmaker group that was helping me, and he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty close to a deal with some some stuff, and they kind of like what they're saying. And uh, yeah, so I'll keep you posted on that. Just 
make sure all your paperwork's in order. I'm like, all right, we'll see. Like in my mind, I'm like, all right. Well, yeah. I never even met you in person. I've only talked to you on the phone a few times. So stranger things have happened. So I'm like, cool. I don't know. Because my my dream is my like the money up front kind of distribution deal with mm-hmm. like we like it here's x amount at the top and then you can get residual if right. people like you know you get more from there versus the the classic which i feel like a lot of places are more leaning towards like nothing up front deferred payment we own the whole thing and we will send you money if if there's yeah. some left over so then i'm like well at that rate like i'd rather just put it out and yeah kind of and just get as many eyes on on it as possible myself versus mm-hmm. relying on you, which you don't care as much as I do. So, right. Uh, but yeah, uh, I I got back um, I got back a no response. Yeah, you're gonna get the nose. I know it's just so frustrating. I mean, that's not frustrating. It's I was talking to somebody else about this, but the difficulty level at each stage of the process is just so high. Yeah. That. You think you're finished, and you get but no, you're not. you get no's at every single stage of the way, and it never stops. So I'm just like, oh, like I, I'm fine hearing. It's I don't know. The editing process itself was a lot of like, cause I'm just getting feedback on what's not working, mm-hmm. like the whole time. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right, filter all that, use it in the edit, tweak that, tweak that. But then now it's done, and it's like, oh man. They don't like it. Like, oh. So it's just, yeah, it's a part of the process, but uh, and it's, it's kind of scary. Like, but, but it's the process. You it's, it's keep process. going. Yeah. Once it's over, you're going to be like, what am I doing now? <laughs> that's, that's already what I felt like when, when the final export was done. I'm yeah. Like, I hit the, the post, the post project depression pretty quick. But now you have a whole new battle to fight. Right, which it's a different battle that's not creative. So it's it's a different it's a different thing that I'm still looking yeah. forward to, and it's it's interesting. But you gotta be creative in your tactics to getting it yeah. sold, just so, distributed. So I would love to have because okay, another thing with each pro each leg of the process too is you can take as much time as you want during right. each stage. So right. you know me, I'm not a fan of waiting around to see. Because otherwise we would never have shot it because yeah. it's like oh he wants to, he wants to make sure the script is perfect or whatever so um, so right now I'm like how long do I want to dedicate to distribution mm-hmm. in that phase mm-hmm. ideally either either a deal is struck by like I would say by December end of the year or I just put it out myself. That sounds smart to me. So it's like, all right, 2019, make it. 2020, make sure it gets out mm-hmm. or sold. Because then selling it would probably not go out, and I'd have to sneak. Right. I'd have to sneak files to people. Yeah, then it's a secret. Top secret. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah, my link doesn't work anymore. I can't. I can't pirate it. Mm-hmm. Missed out. Yeah. But um, yeah, that was one thing I was working toward was uh, I was having a lot of issue processing what it meant to have a completed project. Like, I don't know 
I guess that's kind of why I was asking you a little bit about you put so much, so many years into into writing your book that mm-hmm. when it's out there, it's like what now? Um, and I don't know. Yeah, well, the plan was always to adapt it, and I worked with a few different producers who noted it to shit till it was unrecognizable as a story, and I, I was just trying to please them, and I kind of got lost in the ideas of what it could be, and eventually I came back to the realization that I did it. It's done. The, the book is perfect, and anything else is just icing on the cake if it happens, but I'm not going to put much stock in it because I did my job, and... Yeah. It feels good. Get that first book in your hand. You know, a real paperback yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. Fully designed and bound. It's pretty imp- pretty pretty special. But yeah, no, I guess like like yeah, you said, yeah, knowing knowing that there's a next step for you kind of helps. Yeah. Um, one thing that I don't know if you want to steal this idea, but it's uh, Mark Duplass had a I like him. had a uh, like a free hour session that he did during quarantine about writing and stuff. So I, I went on that. And one thing he said he was doing to kind of get his creative stuff out was uh, he was experimenting with, he's like, each day, you've already done this part, but each day he would write towards this, this novel, this narrative. Mm-hmm. So step one was this amount of time per day. And once I had this many words, mm-hmm. I'll, you know, fix that up. And then from there, I already know the next step is going to be a teleplay. I think he was going to do a teleplay version, mm-hmm. audio, uh, some sort of audio read of the, the story. of the story, but rewritten for audio recording purposes. And then from there, he'll take that and he'll take that and turn it into a screenplay. Mm-hmm. And then from there, he'll see what he wants to do from there. But he... He was like, all right, I'm just going to make a story, see what happens. And at each stage of the way, I can kind of fix it and create it and craft it mm-hmm. and and just have stuff to do. That's the key, having stuff to do, man. <laughs> Tell yeah. you. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, that that outline is staring me in the face right now. That's but. big, yeah. And notice you don't use different colors. Nah. I like the, the three color acts. coordination. Mm-hmm. No, 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 your process is just fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Cause um, I know, yeah, yeah. For, well, because, yeah, you're much more familiar with it than I am, so. Um, I mean, the, key, the real key is I need a female writer to write it and a female director to direct it mm-hmm. if it's ever going to get made. Same kind of story about you writing someone else's, you know, I, no one wants to hear from me anymore. You'd, you'd rather stay on as like a, like a, I don't know what to call them, not like a consultant, but yeah, as the writer, producer, I mean, you being there as a producer writer is plenty, yeah. plenty of you gotta you gotta give all your insight into. Yeah, I just think it's time to turn it over. I've I've lived inside of it for so long and turned it into this one form, which is a prose memoir. Like I I struggle with re envisioning it as a screenplay. I'm not a screenwriter. There are people who are much better at screenwriting than me. And they should probably handle it. And it should probably be a, a female who can add a little bit more of that true psychology from the woman's perspective. And I think it should be directed by a female. And I did my part. Yeah. No, but the key is just finding a female writer. It's hard to find someone who wants to invest in a project that's not theirs, you know, to adapt something. So my ears to the ground. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it sounds exciting to me. Yeah. It's one of those things that just kind of keeps it's there. It's always there, but it is there. Yeah. Let's see. All right, we got half an hour. Um. Oh, yeah, what I was gonna do too. All right, what I was trying to say. Or I was interrupt. I'm just kidding. Uh, was I? I want knowing that it was done. The feature, knowing mm. that I completed a feature film, was great. But not having, I guess, like the proper send off into the next phase of like, all right, it's completed. Would be a premiere, right? A premiere event where I'm like, all right, I can sit in a room, and I can hear reactions. Yeah. And people can talk to me after about the thing and have my Q and A. Yeah, you didn't get that at all. Like that's that's more of the the I don't know what we would call it, but just the final mark of, of right. the completion. But being that that's not really the world we live in right now, it's kind of like well, it's done, and I have to silently celebrate by myself at home. Like it's kind of like a weird thing to yeah to. As far as as momentous as it is, I wonder if that's beneficial in some way, though, because it allows you to just celebrate for yourself and not have your ego wrapped up in it. Yeah, we like our egos. We do like our egos, especially after a lot of hard work. It's okay to get a little hit. It's probably important. Yeah. How's your nose doing, buddy? It's fine. It's all the pollen. Is this your camera? It's Hunter's. That's Hunter's. Yeah. All right. I want to talk about. I mean, unless there's anything that you've that you wanted, anything that you're missing. But I just like following you along, man. I I wanted your take on the evolution of the self and how it is for you looking back and like if if you section off your life of like oh this period is like mm-hmm. i hit my prime here mm-hmm. and i and i and i've or like this was the part where i was like this and you can like look back and pinpoint yeah um, that kind of stuff like how do you <laughs> how, do I... how do you how do you assess the growth of yourself and how do you feel looking back at older versions of yourself <laughs> I mean, I've definitely grown because I look back at versions of myself and not super proud of them, but I also understand them, mm-hmm. which you have to have a little empathy for your So if we were to start, ourselves. and I know you like to talk about um, on your podcast how there was this phase of yourself where... Uh, it was like, shitty? Where you like, people... I don't know if they thought you're like you were an asshole or like you just you had that you had that straight like default face mm-hmm. where people couldn't. It was very off putting. And so, it was very like automatic. People would have this like automatic <laughs> reaction to me in like situations where I did not expect it at all. And I'd be like, what did I do? But it's just some vibe I was putting out where I was just being So was so that a phase you entered into or was it was it your default phase up until a point when you noticed it and then you grew out like I wanna know about I think that phase came about in college out of insecurity. Mm. 
and being surrounded by really accomplished, um, what I perceive to be mature. The brunchers. No. They were the real deal. No, they were the real deal. They were super high achieving. Um, I mean, I went to Dartmouth, so everyone's like a valedictorian and captain of this and built an orphanage here and yeah. is going to go to this med school and is going to get this iBanking job. And you get a little bit paralyzed by the fact that can you keep up with them? And one way to protect yourself is to just be build a get wall. on the defensive and build a wall and don't let anyone in. And by doing so, you protect yourself from getting hurt by being on the offensive and it's not it's pretty effective but it's not ideal and yeah that's something you just got to get over so that those are your college years yeah and then when did you when did you, how when did you break that down or when did you enter your next phase um i think when i was in jordan i when I was reading a lot of self-help books and Marcus Aurelius and Eckhart Tolle and anything I get my hands on, I realized the importance of just being honest and trying to be kind and trying to be vulnerable. And that was the phase of me starting to let people in and be open and warm. And that's what led to my first relationship. It allowed me the, the vulnerability to take a leap into a relationship for the first time in my life. Um, but... And then that progressed, especially as I learned modeling and auditioning and being on set where you have to be the best version of yourself or no one's going to care about you. And you have to be warm. You have to be genuine. You, and you can't fake it. you got to have some element of mm-hmm. earnesty in your intention to bring a positive energy and a helpful energy and a selfless energy into that room because if if you don't do it someone else will and they'll get the job because it's all about help it's all about being helpful and being what can i what can i bring to this situation what can i bring to this set not what is it going to get me is it going to get me famous is it going to get me money is it my friends going to see me on tv that's not what matters what matters is what you can bring as a technician that's what hayes and i talked about on my last episode of the podcast um and you just gotta you gotta get over you gotta have that self-transcendence um, if you really want to be happy, be invested and integrated in your surroundings, your community, your your world, and and just get out of your own head. You got to get out of your own head. You gotta... Yeah, because I think that that goes for any position on set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I sometimes it just takes actors more time to realize that they're not that important. <laughs> because we get pampered and we get ushered to the front of the food line at Mm -hmm. lunch because it's not because we're special it's because we have to get back to hair and makeup so we can because we have a shortened lunch so it's but people can take it the wrong way and think that they're more important than the grip or the gaffer or whoever else is on set and it's that's not true yeah not true yeah so all right so you had you had so is it I guess when I think about myself, mm-hmm. I even look back to Eddie of last year and I look at like early behind the scenes <laughs> photos of us from like the poster shoot and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that's me? Shucks. Like, I feel like I've grown a lot since even just that moment there. Yeah. And uh, 
it's kind of funny for me too because like I've been like this is longest my hair has ever been and it's just kind of like random like I've, I've joked about doing the man bun thing for mm-hmm. like ever you're doing it and uh, now I'm doing it yeah and my parents hate it <laughs> uh, they always do but um no like I like even like there's just even small things too where I look at myself then think about how much I've done since then and uh like even just physically like there's the hair change and then I'm like oh I'm like I'm tanner now (laughs) (laughs) you've been working out been working drinking tea drinking tea like I'm like I think I'm like 15 pounds different from of from that eddie of more more pounds less less I've lost like 15 pounds during like this year like, I, don't, I don't even know where it went or where it was. I gained but... 15 pounds. <laughs> COVID's been bad to me. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, because I see people posting on social about, like, when you get back to normal, I'm going to, like, during the during the Tinder dates or whatever, I'm just, we're all just going to acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all They're all on. soft. And then I'm like, uh. Yeah, I mean. Well, because you went. <laughs> into working out in COVID where I went from having oh, right. 10 workouts a week to like a few <laughs> and eating pizza a lot but that's what quarantine's good. been for I've enjoyed it let, um, let him loose now work is back and I'm being a good boy and it's fine yeah cause it's all I mean yeah for sure uh, taking care of yourself mentally mm-hmm. is super important which I'm sure is a lot of that too it's like you just gotta you kind of yourself be accept it yeah or else you're gonna drive yourself crazy um but there's a point where it stops being cute and you gotta get back to work (laughs) (laughs) but um yeah like there's moments i was gonna ask you this too like there were moments in high school Mm -hmm. where i was still figuring out how to how to speak speak (laughs) to people yeah oh yeah like no not public speaking necessarily but i was the uh the super shy kid that would i had the classic shy kid like gamer i was very shy monotone monotone like there's a lot happening in here but when i speak it's just like yeah i guess just that (laughs) So it took it took a, a lady friend making fun of me to realize like wait I talk like that like shucks like I don't <laughs> better work on that I gotta like so th- there were specific things that I did to myself to like manufacture a personality mm-hmm. that I, I was like oh I want to be like this so let me let me increase the octave of my voice so it's not so low like, yeah let me I have to consciously. Or like I would, I, I, cause I still mumble a lot, but like, yeah. There's things that I do to kind of help fix those things that I had to consciously tweak and change, and I don't know if that's a normal thing that people do, or I don't know how people manufacture their changes, but like. I haven't done it to like a, the physiological stent that you have, but definitely have been like. Cause even my laugh. I have tried to make changes change. of the terms of like, talking to strangers and being friendly and you know engaging with cashiers and waiters more than you need to I, I've, I've definitely made those changes but yeah but you never thought about like oh i want my laugh to be like this let me let me no. 
because <laughs> like that's what I, I did that like I, I used to laugh I'm sure people do that I don't know no, I'm just never I don't know not aware of my voice very no, much you're just comfortable with it or whatever or you had a great laugh in the beginning who knows I'll tell you once you start recording podcasts and listen to your voice it gets real weird it's like yeah. too much of your voice it's a lot of voice yeah but yeah like I used to laugh I think I would just laugh like the silent laugh or just like outward breathing yeah <laughs> and then I had to work on that but that's how i think about my phases too i was like oh i wasn't even at the the voice phase yet and yeah there's now there's this this is the phase when he broke out of that relationship that now now he kind of accepted himself for who he is and then here's the phase where he started being taken seriously and grew a lot of confidence and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then here's the post feature phase where he's got the man bun yeah he's tan he's he's, he's just jacked. like he's just like peak <laughs> But you gotta keep peeking, man. You can't. You can never peek. Well, I mean, you know for sure. There's still more to more to grow. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really. You don't think too much. <laughs> not lately. But I try not to look back and be like, "Oh, those are the best times of my life." I want to keep having the best times of my life. Right. And that takes active work. That takes, you know, effort. It doesn't just happen. Um, and you just got to be a long, you got to be down for the ride because things change and sometimes your desires change and your pathway changes because of it and you got to, you got to be open to embracing it or else you're going to get stuck in something that's not fulfilling and, you know, the longer you get stuck in it, the harder it is to get out. Same kind of thing. This isn't the topic I talk about too frequently, but I figured it might be fun to talk about because I feel like neither of us ever talk about it. It's called politics. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> you go first. Um, one thing that I've been thinking, and maybe you can enlighten me a little bit, not somewhere, is... I guess I guess it's the theme of like quarantine and, and and stuff, but it's it's the the frustration of the world mm-hmm. and seeing kind of what's going on and how things are being run and how certain certain things are portrayed in different scenarios and then like one thing that frustrates me about politics in general and why I don't normally talk about it ever is the uh, it's the thing I've never understood about the party system right um on the left versus right the red versus blue Mm -hmm. the the perspective of this side on the idea of the tribalism yeah the tribalism of it um and i guess it kind of it kind of leans into the overarching theme that we've kind of delved into a little bit with uh creating change and and being and being a a part of a a more positive outlook yeah my I wish there was something I could do that could be done to have people have the more nuanced uh, discussions Mm -hmm. of, of issues versus the blanket well, it's all so extreme Labeling. at this point. It's all, 
there's no room for consideration of someone else's perspective. It's all right versus wrong, left versus right. So I mean, I don't. But I don't know why. You're asking the wrong guy, man. I, don't, <laughs> I think people are, like you said, frustrated and angry, and they don't feel taken care of, and they feel embattled, and they feel like they have to have this like offensive attitude, and not, you know, as opposed to being defensive. And it's the only way that they can gain some ground. It's, I don't know. The one thing I think about in terms of the political <laughs> landscape of the past few years is that the pendulum of narcissism has swung to its apex. And now it's a matter of, does it stay there? Does it prove that it can go a little farther? Or do we swing back? <laughs> and I think it's just a matter of that's the way our culture has been moving for the last decade or so. I mean, whenever you go to CNN.com and you click on an article about the Kardashians and not the war in Senegal or whatever, like you're just supporting this this cultural zeitgeist of vapid like I, mean, I don't know. I don't even know what to call it. It's just self-interest. Do you disagree? No, no, no. I'm thinking more about I guess I guess another uh, it feels like I changed a topic but <laughs> there's it's the it's the same feeling of the lack of control that one feels of oh I was going to blame social media too but Do it. but uh <laughs> cuz the thing that social media does for us is it helps bring to light issues that are happening around the world quickly. Mm-hmm. Like there's the, um, yeah, where, I feel like I'm, I'm not as up to speed as I should be on things, but there's a, a huge, going there's on. a huge explosion in, uh, that one country that's really bad. Oh, Lebanon. Lebanon. Yeah. Yeah. There's a Lebanon thing and they're like whole, destabilization mm-hmm. of their country it's just getting worse mm-hmm. and then there's the uh the weaker muslims in china the other Uyghurs, yeah. that are all being enslaved enslaved over there and hong kong is getting taken over mm-hmm. and we have children all on the border being held in caves in the not caves cages, cages yeah in the states there's this is a real bummer so <laughs> So, like, it's great. Well, the world is a big place. There's a lot happening, mm-hmm. and we are very small. And the, Yeah. So, I just... And yet, we take up a lot of air. We take up a lot of air. And, uh... I'm saying the U.S. does. We're, we're taking up more than our fair share right now, I think. Oh, you're talking about, like, pollution, or... No, just, like, we're... Oh, like the attention. The way we've handled this pandemic is so sloppy. Mm-hmm. We have so many. It's a, there's no reason for us to have such a poor response to it. And I don't know why we can't get our shit together. We look like fools in front of the, the whole geopolitical world. landscape. The whole world. We're not even allowed to go to countries at this point because we're like pig people. <laughs> it's rough. Yeah, it's rough. So, uh, I. It's 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 crazy, knowing all the like being exposed to all this stuff, and then in the end, it's like, well, from my perspective, I'm like, well, at least I'm picking up trash. Right. That's <laughs> you know? that's all. So it's a weird it's a weird thing because I need to go pick up some trash. I feel like you're making a real difference. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm going to end on a bummer note, but... <laughs> Do you think we're going to go back to movie theaters? They're open. Are they? You can go to the movies right now? What? Like at 20% capacity or something. Yeah. Like Tenet opens this weekend. Yeah, it's doing pretty well, I think, in like China. Crazy. I'm going to do it, like Nolan. I'm, I'm tempted. I'm tempted. Can you watch it on demand right now? It's only theaters. Only theaters. Christopher Nolan's big on the theatrical experience. So yeah, I mean, he shot it on IMAX. It's like you gotta see it on the big screen. Yeah. I miss movies a lot. I used to go to a lot of movies. Yeah. All right. Did we do it? No, it's. Uh, yeah, we got a whole minute. We made it. Yeah, we did it. So thanks for thanks for being on and being down for the challenge. Sit I'm down to just talk for three hours anytime. Yeah. It's nice. So, yeah, one thing, I guess, to, to close it off, but, um, ooh, cool emails. Cool. Uh, yeah, no, having, I haven't chatted with anybody for this amount of time and who knows how long, ever. Not even Hunter? That's the thing with the roommates. You don't talk to you roommates. You don't sit down and talk. You don't, you don't sit and Put talk. Put your phone away. I feel like a, I feel like a dad kind of like asking the kid to like put your phone down yeah. come have dinner with me yeah. like let's I how was like, your day so i feel like that like i feel like i'm having to like let's let's have some let's have some bonding time let's like it's hard when you're on top of each other yeah know? exactly that's the you need small doses but uh yeah so but for now uh we will end it i do have right. something to show you off off camera okay but bye